0: Okay,
1: well tonight I'm very pleased to, to say that we have Steve Wozniak here, um longtime friend of Berkeley. In fact I believe he says in print that the third year he had in college was the best year ever that happened to be here. And for the break between his third and fourth year, he did all the stuff you're gonna hear to about tonight with the Apple One and the Two and and all these achievements. So you didn't want to be in his class, he was dragging down the up the curve for
2: everybody else, the direction that curve. Oh, no, no. No? Not sure? Okay. (laughs) I hope not. Um,
1: I do want to, because I suspect he'll be too shy, strongly endorse this book. Um, Just came out, I Was, um, and I'm delighted to say that you know you see a book like this and due to the wonderful publishing technologies we have in the United States today, it doesn't matter if you're a bank robber or a politician or a felon or anybody else, you all sound exactly the same. This book has this wonderful distinctive voice and it tells you what it felt like in the when he was doing these innovations. For a social scientist like me, it's just invaluable. I mean, consider this primary source material about how the innovation system works. It's also a great read, um, and uh, I think with that, I'm going to do what you want me to do and sit down. Uh, let me just say the procedure for tonight. Um, first thing that we're going to do is we're going to have uh, give a talk, and after that, we're going to have a conversation with the instructors of the class. Uh, well, after that, we'll have a break, and then after the break, we'll have a, some conversation to, to bring the points that, that maybe weren't in the talk or that. Or that could use expanding. And after that, we'll open the students in the class. And after that, we'll throw it open to everybody. Uh, Steve has been feeling a little bit under the weather lately, so uh, hopefully we'll go the full distance. Uh, But anyway, I'm very grateful that that (coughs) you could make it here tonight, and uh, I'm looking forward, like I'm sure you are, to uh, what he has to say. Please join me
0: in welcoming
2: Well, I like to say now I are a writer. <laughs> this, is, this is an engineering joke. Um, yeah, the story, uh, the long, long story. <coughs> into you know how the personal computers came to be and that part of the computing industry and computing history and um, our role, you know, Steve Jobs and myself, two young kids, in our young twenties, we didn't have any money, any savings account, you know, we didn't have three hundred dollars cash in our pockets, you know. How did we do it? What were the steps? It's kinda interesting. I'm gonna step back a little bit further and give a little bit of a build up as to um, why was building the apple computers the first ones in a style very much never done before where did it all come from what were the seeds of the thinking and all that um You know, when I was young, I got, you know, motivated, like a lot of us, you know, like even Steve Jobs would say, reading books about technical heroes, about engineers who went into laboratories, designed things, and they solved the problems of the world. And I decided, wow, I want to be an engineer like my dad. So fun, you'd go down and watch him work, and he'd hook parts together and sit there, and I was very young, you know, maybe five, six years old, and put parts together and put up a little picture on an oscilloscope and take pictures of it for his boss, and wow, this is such neat work, you know, I want to do that someday, really smart people do that. Another thing I would notice about my dad is he would lay, as an engineer, he would lay large sheets of paper around our house and just continually work on huge designs over the weekends, hour after hour after hour, you know, he'd do it for weeks on end, and it was like, these projects are very important to drive you to work that hard. Um, I was lucky to grow up in Silicon Valley. I got to see the world change from trans from tubes in television sets and the like to transistors, the small little silicon devices into chips. Got to see the evolution of the industry firsthand. My dad was an engineer at Lockheed and he worked on things that he could never talk to us about, but they were like satellite guidance systems, you know, missiles that were launched from from submarines. And my so my father turns out that as the first chip companies in the area, William Shockley developed the transistor out east with AT&T, came out to Mountain View, and opened up Shockley Labs. And out, about, out of Shockley Labs, a bunch of transistor people spun off that wanted to build transistors at companies like Raytheon and Fairchild and Ream, and they were all over Santa Clara, Mountain View, Sunnyvale. And here in Sunnyvale, Lockheed Martin opened a huge building. And back then, Silicon Valley was Santa Clara Valley full of trees. Sunnyvale was full of orchards, full of cherry orchards, um, apricot orchards. We had seven apricot trees in our yard. Um, You'd have to ride your bike through the orchards and go to schools. Everything was new. I loved growing up where everything was new. The streets, the curbs, the buildings, the schools, and everything was very clean. We kind of lived in that part of Sunnyvale. And down the road, Lockheed Martin was hiring engineers. So a lot of engineers were moving into town. That meant that a lot of the kids in the neighborhood had engineers for fathers. And I would call these friends that I had, every friend in the neighborhood practically, was an electronics kid. You went around, you talked about electronics, you drove your bike down to Sunnyvale Electronics and looked at the parts they had. They didn't really even sell transistors back then. That was in the days when if your television failed, you'd you'd, you'd pull out some tubes. Or if a radio failed, you'd pull out these tubes that would heat up like uh, they had little filaments in them Run down to the grocery store and test them. Even everyone in the family, the kids, the husbands, the wives, everyone would take tubes down to a grocery store and plug them into the right slot and see if it was red or green, good or bad, buy a new tube. It was just everybody's job in those days. Well, the world was moving towards transistors and the engineers were moving to town. Transistors at first cost a lot of money. Any new technology costs a lot of money. When the, um, so, ba- the basic users of transistors were not people, it was sort of the military, and I got a, I finally got a transistor radio when I was in about sixth grade, a little blue transistor radio. I could hold it in my hand, dial in different channels, listen to music, wow, that was the most wonderful device I ever had in my life, I mean, almost to this day. I would sleep listening to music all night long, and it just became a big part of my life. I went to my dad and I said, wow, and he said, "They're building. they're going to build chips. They're going to build pieces of silicon where they put six transistors on one piece of silicon. And I said, wow, so they can make better transistor radios? And he said, he said well, um, not really. They're gonna, the, first, they're going to make chips for the military. You know, what falls out? The low cost stuff. That's what consumers get in their home. And I had this idea in my head that the things we have in our own homes, the average normal Joe has certain appliances, has lights and dishwashers and that sort of thing, those are the things that really matter in life, you know, that I wish they were driving the state of the art of technology. Well. Excuse me. As an engineer... Uh, my father um, was very, um, he was actually very distinguished in Lockheed, so he made good contacts with the people in these chip companies. And one time my dad took me to a show when I was 10 years old called Westcon in San Francisco. And the Westcon show is where people would show their newest capacitors, their newest little soldering irons. It was an older technology day, but here at one of the booths, a guy held up a picture. And the picture looked like a little city diagram, or maybe a diagram of the buildings here on campus. And what it really was, was they explained to me it was going to be six transistors on one piece of silicon once they had made it. They hadn't quite made it yet. So it was that early. How lucky, for as a young kid, to get to see like some of the very first chips ever being made in the world. Nobody really had an idea of how far that was going to go and um, change life and products forever. So uh, this was very exciting to me. Well. I got into science fair projects. My dad didn't push us into electronics. My siblings didn't wind up going into electronics. But somehow I found that it was my love inside. So when I would ask questions. How does this work? And my dad would help me out with science fair projects. And he always liked to start at the very lowest level. Understanding how an atom is constructed and how the electrons work in the atom comes before how do electrons flow through wires and then what are some of the formulas that you have when electrons throw flu- flow through wires and turn lights on and that sort of thing. So he was always willing to pull out a blackboard and explain things and, um, and demonstrate and teach me the formulas to use. And that was very helpful um, because that's what I love. Now, one day... Uh, well, in, I'll go back, in a couple of science fair projects, in fifth grade, um, my father got a bunch of transistors given to us. Because of his closeness with the transistor companies, he was basically able to get them to donate cosmetic rejects, And this was a part that none of my friends had. Nobody could afford a transistor in their home, but we had a bunch of transistors and diodes donated, and my father taught me how to build logic gates. And uh, I actually learned it in a manual that I found in the hallway, and it explained things like how television tubes, every dot on the television tube could be a memory, could be sensed and refreshed. And it had other articles that discussed the algebra, the, the um, arithmetic of ones and zeros, and the arithmetic of ones and zeros is as simple as the arithmetic that we use for base 10. It's just as easy. So I was in fifth grade and I was thinking, whoa, computers are beyond rocket science. Computers are the most far out thing. You'll never see one in your life. You'll never come close to a real computer and yet it's real easy. A fifth grader can do it. You don't need geometry, trigonometry, you know, you don't need calculus. You don't need all this higher level math. And math tends to be built one subject on another on another, but you could understand computers in fifth grade. So I thought, wow, I've got my own special little thing that none of the other kids in school, none of the other fifth graders, for example, have as their thing. Um, around this time, I did have a ham radio license because of um, I got interested in ham radio. And in those days, you'd buy a kit of parts. And you'd bolt together this big metal frame and bolt together another metal frame for a transmitter, one for a receiver, and you'd bolt in all the tube sockets and solder the wires. It took weeks to build. And when you finished it up, you'd have to measure out an antenna on your roof and have a little ham radio so I could actually, got it, got it with Morse code, tap out and reach far out to other states. What an impressive, impressive thing. You know, and I just, I didn't tell any of the friends at school really that I was doing it. Just did it on my own because I loved it. And uh, one day, as a joke, my mom was in, was in Republican politics. So as a joke, we went down to a show, and I had this little piece of paper that I would unfold, and it said, ham radio operators of Sarah school unanimously support Richard Nixon for governor. It's a joke. I'm the only one. Unanimously. It's a joke. As soon as I opened it up, all these flashbulbs went off. Flash, 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 flash. The San Jose Mercury put the picture on the front page, and they said it was Steve Wozniak representing a school group. It was a joke. A lot of times I find out people don't like jokes. My mom always encouraged us to have a sense of humor. and I always carried that along with electronics. There are a lot of places for a sense of humor. So in fifth grade, I did build a science project. It was a tic-tac-toe computer. Actually, that was 6th grade. Um, The tic-tac-toe computer, tic-tac-toe is a game of logic. You can say there's a set of rules that if you follow these rules, you will not lose the game of tic-tac-toe. For example, if there's an X in one corner and an X in another corner, you better put an O in between them. And you can actually play every game of tic-tac-toe, and you can number squares the ways... Computers like things that have numbers, you know, square number, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. And you can make a set of rules. If 1 and 2, or 3 and 4, then you should go into 5. That sort of, those sort of equations. Those are logic equations. But what I did to build the science fair project, I took a 3 by 4 foot piece of plywood pounded in nails all over the place pounded in nails and I soldered leads of transistors and resistors soldered everything to the nails making one of the rules of tic-tac-toe after another, after another, after another all of the rules boiled down to little circuits and um, so that was, it was quite an incredible, huge, huge project in terms of the number of parts and um, a few years after that by the way, in sixth grade, that was when I told my dad I'm going to be an engineer when I grow up You know, I made it up in my mind. And pretty much, you know, when you come up with goals when you're young, you tend to stick with them and achieve them. If You you make sort of goals that are commitments to yourself, not to the world. um, You tend to achieve them. So I said, I'm going to be an engineer. But my second goal in life is to be a fifth-grade teacher like the, like my fifth grade teacher, because my dad had taught me how important our teachers were, where they were taking us in life. Our education was really going to separate us from the rest of the world and give us a good future and all that stuff. And I said, do teachers make more than engineers? Like a young kid, you know. And he said, no. I said, oh, uh, well, does my elementary school teacher make more than college professors? He said, no, they don't. Oh, well, that was kind of sad. I didn't understand that. But uh, I had my goal. By eighth grade... I built another science fair project. I was on a search to figure out what a computer was, but by then I was so shy as a person that I couldn't really ask, what is a computer? How are computers made? What are the elements of a computer? Um, And I was too shy to go look for any books, if you could even find them in a public library, books on computers. Computers were still so far off, you'd never really get to them. You gotta remember, these are the era when there were no undergraduate computer courses in the country about 1963. A lot of things happened in 1963. I built this computer which had tons of transistors and diodes on a board and logic elements that would add and subtract binary numbers. Binary numbers are ones and zeros. So I had a row of switches that you could toggle in one zero, one zero, one one zero zero and look at a big chart I made and that would tell you that was the number 356 you could toggle in another number on another set of switches, 110, 110, 110, and that was number 254. And then you'd, you'd, get, you'd see the sum, or you could flip a switch and see the difference. It was an add or subtractor. I entered it in the science fairs, and in the um, Bay Area Science Fair, it was really cool. They came and they talked to me, and I explained how the electrons flow through resistors, and what the formulas were, and how how if you mix signals with two resistors, they could kind of ore together. Either one of the signals might get through, but then they'll feed back. But if you use diodes, the electrons can only go one way, and they can't feed back. And I explained all this stuff to the interviewer, and they gave me the award for the top electronics project in the whole fair, and it was up through 12th grade, and I was only in 8th grade. So as a result, I won a prize. I got the, the first airplane flight of my life. got to go up to Travis Air Force Base, and uh, we flew off. And, and it was really cool to have that kind of special treatment. Still, the kids in school didn't know that I was doing this stuff. A couple of teachers heard about it, asked me to bring in my computer, and they go, ooh, and ah, oh, and they really res- made me feel good about it. And the praise from teachers helps a lot, because when you get made to feel that you're good at something, then you want to keep doing that thing that you're good at. It's just sort of a natural inclination in life. Well, high school, by high school, I was using electronics for a lot of pranks, and I'm really proud that I never got caught for... I was, I was good enough not to get caught. at of pranks. I got caught so many times in junior high school that I knew that you don't tell anyone what you're doing. And it only caught me for one ever in, in high school, but it was, at least it was electronics. What it was was an electronic metronome. And it was going tick, 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 and I thought, hey, I'll put it in a friend's locker, you know, like a bomb.
0: <laughs>
2: and I guess these big empty battery canisters helped uh, convince him it was a bomb, but that um, was too weak to hear. I thought, what a wasted prank. He's never going to hear it. He never opens his locker anyway. And then about halfway through the day, my uh, counselor said, Mr. Regan, the vice principal, wants to see you in his office. <laughs> so I got a little nervous, and I went to look at the locker the bomb had been in, and it wasn't in there anymore. And then I went to Mr. Regan's office, and I'm sitting there thinking, Are they going to give me a math award?
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, then the cops walked in, and all these wires hanging out of a box, and I thought, <laughs> Oh, no, they called the Bomb Demolition Squad. <laughs> so, and, and what really nailed me, really got me a, a night in juvie was. When the principal and the vice principal and the dean and the counselor and a couple of police officers are sitting around this table, and the principal is describing how he heard the ticking in a locker and he opened it up and he pulled it out and he held it to his chest and he ran out to the football field where he dismantled it, and I just couldn't stop laughing. Which isn't a locker so when you opened it the ticking sped up. <laughs> there's no sense there's, yeah, there's no sense not thinking ahead. Always trying to think one step beyond what other people would have. You know, applies to electronics and that kind of humor like keeps you going in electronics, trying to think up new ideas that other people wouldn't have thought of before and that sort of thing. Well, in high school I was one of those top math science students getting the awards of the school and whatnot. <laughs> And same thing in junior high school, actually. But then I was in electronics, and electronics was like a vocational course back then. So it wasn't that not that many of the smart kids in school took electronics? And we had one of the greatest electronic classes of all time. The local colleges didn't have as much test equipment and gear and parts as we did. Our, our just the teacher was just so great. He talked the school district into buying low-cost kits the first years of the sc- of the high school and the students that were in electronics would build a kit that would make a voltage generator and the next year they build a kit that would make an oscilloscope and build a kit that would make meters and so by the time I got there we had complete test equipment and the teacher wrote his own courses he wrote them in an order first you construct these circuits take these measurements and record the results and then you learn after resistors then you learn how to extend it up to inductors and capacitors and other electronic parts and then you learn how to build a tube circuit that'll do these things up to how do you service televisions and all that it was a great course. But I was so far advanced in electronics, he said, well, Steve, you kind of know everything in the class here, so I've arranged that every Friday you can go down to Sylvania in Sunnyvale and program a computer. Whoa. To get to touch a computer. We didn't have a computer in our high school. I get to touch a computer. I'm going to be the only kid in the high school programming a computer. And... um I got a Fortran manual, went down, saw this IBM computer, 1170 or whatever it was, I forget the number, and uh, went home and studied and wrote a couple simple programs, and one of the first programs I wrote was the Knight's (coughs) Tour, and the Knight's Tour is where a knight jumps around the chessboard and tries to hit every one of the 64 squares exactly once, and not duplicate any squares. And I would jump, my program would jump and jump and jump until the night got trapped and had no valid moves. Then it would back up and change a move and try a different one. It's called a backtracking algorithm. And it would back up further and try other other methods. And um, so I figured, this is so great, man. I love these. A computer can do a million things a second. How fast could a human do things? You know, if we were to count, we can count about one a second. This computer can do so many things, it's unbelievable. I sat there, the lights flickered, and I didn't get any results out from my night's tour program. And the engineer taught me that programs can have loops, where they just go around do the same thing over and over and over, and then they hang up, and they never they never finish. They, they hang. And I went back the next week. I was printing out chess boards. And I studied it, and I found out my program was doing exactly the right things. It would solve the problem, but I calculated it was going to take 10 to the 25th years. <laughs> so... Um, they been longer than the universe. So <laughs> that told me that just because a computer is fast and can do a million things a second, it can't solve some of the difficult problems. You need to have more thinking, more intelligence, more of an approach or an algorithm to solve them. Um, after that, uh, while I was down at that company programming the computer one day, I saw a little booklet called The Small Computer Handbook. And you remember, I always wanted to know, what is a real computer? I kind of searched through it on my science fair projects, getting up to a machine that could add and subtract. And then I went to a science fair one year, and I saw a machine with a motor that went click, 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 click. And at every stop of the clicks, it did an instruction that you could dial in. So I figured out it's one little instruction after another little instruction after another little instruction and then the motor could zip back and it could repeat itself. So I sort of had that idea in my head, that was the extent of what I knew about a computer. Here was something called the Small Computer Handbook and they saw that I was interested so they said you can have it. And what this book did, it described the PDP-8 computer from Digital Equipment Corporation. Inside, you would open it up and describe what I'm calling the architecture of a computer. And the architecture of a computer is much like the architecture of a building. Where the rooms are, how big they are, how many windows, how many doors, where the entrances and exits are. And, you know, and it doesn't describe the materials it's made from. That's sort of um, a different part of the procedure. So the, as I looked over this manual of the computer, it described how many registers it had and what instruction codes, what ones and zeros equaled what instructions telling this little computer what to do, step by step by step. And then it popped in my head, I knew how to make all this logic stuff going back to tic-tac-toe. Why don't I see if I could design these little symbols called gates on a piece of paper design them up and make them do what this computer does. See if I can make my own version of this PDP-8 computer. And the first time I tried it, my design was many, many pages and very clumsy and didn't really do it all. But I came back another weekend. And I had some fr- a free, every time I had a free weekend, I would shut my door. I never included anyone. No friends were doing this with me, no teachers, not even my, my father. He wasn't really a computer engineer. I just did this on my own, and I sat down, and I finally got closer and closer to using the latest, greatest chips. My dad would get me the newest chip manuals, or I would order them, and see, wow, now they have two adders on a chip instead of just one adder. That means I can use half as many parts for my adder, and I would, you know, get the best, newest chips and try to learn how to design them into this working computer, and I finally Succeeded pretty well. I thought I had it pretty well. What I designed would be a computer. Trouble is, you can't test a design. I couldn't afford any parts ever. A single chip cost 50 bucks back then, and that's probably like $500 today for a chip that you know maybe adds one bit, one zero and a one. Um, It's way too expensive for any individual to consider affording, but I love designing it. Then I uh, came up with a trick. Um, a friend in high school and I would drive down. I wanted to get more computer manuals. I wanted to read ma- engineering books. I wanted to read magazines about computers. There was an engineering library at Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. That was our idea. So this friend, Alan Baum, and I would drive down to Slack on a Sunday. And we'd go on a Sunday because there's probably nobody around. And then what we'd do is go to the main building, and whenever there's smart people, there's doors open. So we tried the (laughs) doors, and sometimes we'd have to climb the stairs. And we'd find a door open. We'd always get into the building, and then we knew where the um, the uh, technical library was. So I got my share of books to read in there in the dark. And I could pull out little cards out of the magazines and fill out my name, (laughs) mail them in, and then all the companies would mail you a copy of their computer manual. So I was getting computer manuals galore from Hewlett Packard, who made computer mini computers. They were called. Data General made mini computers. Digital Equipment made mini computers. Varian made mini computers. Lots of companies in the late 1960s were coming out with mini computers. Um, and so every time I got a manual for a mini computer, that described the architecture. And I was very good with my lumber, which was the chips they're made out of. And I started designing the computers over and over and over every weekend. Well, after a while, I had to go back, and what do I want to do this weekend? I want to design a computer, but I've already designed them all, and I thought, um, and these mini computers were, you know, the big rectangular boxes that would bolt into a rack and sit on a factory floor somewhere, lots of switches and lights, they looked like airplane cockpits, they looked like today's network equipment, totally intimidating to a normal person, but that's what a computer was, and inside of it, lots of cards could plug in and do other electronic things, so what I started doing was, I would design the same computer I designed before, but I would design it over and try to figure out a way, it was a game of mine, a way to design it with fewer chips. So that was, in other words, I'm playing a game for higher efficiency. It's almost like trying to grade somebody in a class. And every time i design the same computer, if I designed it in 82 chips, maybe I can get it down to 80 chips. And I'd come up with clever ideas, and maybe I can get it down to to, 80, to 86 chi- or 76 chips, 75 chips. And over and over, I started coming up with the most incredible methods of never leaving one piece unused. If I needed what's called a little inverter that switches a 0 to a 1 or a 1 to a 0, and I didn't have one free but I had an unused register on another chip figure out well, the register actually has a way that it can be used as an inverter and I would use it instead. Every trick that you'd never find in any book so that I knew I knew by the end of high school that my design techniques were much better than any engineer could ever be even taught. I was just thinking of strange chips that were designed to do one thing could be used for another. It's almost like figuring out that a mirror could be used, a window could be used as a mirror in another, in the right setting or something. Um, or a table could be used as, as something you put on your ceiling <laughs> as a music box. I don't know, it was all these tricks to come up with the best designs um, possible. Now I knew my designs were getting good because they were half as many chips as the manufacturers were building their computers with. <laughs> so I knew that I was really onto something. I called up one of the manufacturers once and I talked them into sending me a bunch of... They wouldn't send me chips. I always wanted to get chips to build one of these. They wouldn't give me a job type, but they sent me a whole ton of literature of programs, mostly programs that their programmers had written. And I studied those programs, and I learned from them. That's how they do this. That's how you solve this on a computer. Um, it's really funny, but almost all of my learning was totally on my own, but it was also by looking at other people's designs, what they had done before, and that was how I learned. It was a very good style of learning. Well, um, about my first year of college, the Data General Nova computer came out, the Nova Mini computer. Instead of a big rectangular box, it was sort of a skinnier one, more of what we call a pizza box. And it was a little more beautiful to look at with your eye, And when you ordered the manual for this computer, it came with a poster that you could put on your wall. So there on my bedroom wall was a poster of the Data General Nova computer in a rack. But but when you ordered more than one manual, sometimes the manuals came with a different picture of that computer. It was a picture of a sculpted, rounded, almost shape with a bunch of little switches, the switches for zeros and ones, and the push buttons to push the data into memory, and the push buttons to push it into address registers, all this geeky stuff. But it was a rounded, sculpted box sitting on a glass round table. Like it would almost be in a home or something like that. And it was the most shocking view of a computer because it was so different than anything before. Um, Throughout high school, through my own readings and all that, I became very minded to be very independent. And I started trying to think out life for myself you know, and how it was going to be. And I didn't want to be one of the crowd didn't want to go to parties. I didn't want to do the things they were doing in parties because everyone else was doing it. I wanted to do things in life because they were the right things to do. I wanted to have reasons and formulas in my head. Um, and, uh, and so I really had this strong impetus to try to think in different ways and to note things that were different and unusual and give them some credit and try to go that way. My first year of college, um, I had 800s on all the SATs for, for math and science, you know, except chem was a little lower. And I, but I could have applied to a lot of technical type schools, um, MIT type schools, but I went out with some friends and we visited the University of Colorado. First airplane flight of your life, you get in at night, you're in a hotel, you wake up the next morning, turn on the TV and it talks about snow. And you open the windows and there's snow. And you've never been in snow in your life. So we walked around, we went outside, we made snowmen, we threw snowballs, we tromped around in this cold stuff for two days at the University of Colorado. There's no way in the world I was going to go to any other place. My heart was set on that one campus, and my parents didn't push me too hard to apply to other schools, so um, that was basically the only school I I would apply to. University of Colorado, like almost all the colleges in the country, they did not have computers as an undergraduate curriculum, and yet computers were my thing in life. But by being enrolled in engineering, I was allowed to take a computer class. And this computer class taught the architecture of computers, little instruction sets, you could write phony little programs in the phony machine language of of a phony machine. And then we got to program in Fortran on the university supercomputer, a CDC 6400 and uh this was great well i started writing programs to do everything i could think of i opened up my handbook of um chemistry and physics because i thought computers calculate numbers and there's lots of tables in there and those tables were calculated by computers why don't i write programs to calculate my own tables so i wrote seven programs to calculate various types of numbers one program would calculate powers of two one would calculate inverse powers of two. Next one would calculate Fibonacci numbers. And what I would do is print 60 pages of numbers, and then stop, because otherwise they'd kick you off the computer, if you went for more than 64 seconds. So I'd always make it under 64 seconds. I'd run seven programs, punched out on punch cards, three times a day, times 60 pages each, just building up piles and piles of computer printout of numbers like powers of 2 that were getting larger than whole sheets of paper and they stopped my programs from running and they called me and the, the professor called me into his office and he starts a tape recorder he says are you out to get me what, what are you talking about? i didn't know anything i was just a little meek skinny guy and um, and, he, and he says i guess it was you know it's during the vietnam war days and i think they were having a lot of protests on campuses and maybe he thought i was try- really trying to get him and he says you're running, what are all these programs you're running? Well, they're programs I wrote. Well, what do they do? Well, they calculate numbers. Yeah, I know, because it took me, it was hard to figure it out, but it took me a long time, and I figured it out, what they do. And I said, this isn't, this isn't our class stuff. I said, it's a Fortran class. And he says, this is not our class stuff. So he calls the computer department right in front of me, and he said, he said oh, it turns out that I would run our class five times over budget. I didn't think they had a budget. I thought when you were in a class, you got told how to run a program. And you ran it. So they had a budget. And I uh, called the computer department and said, Mr. Wozniak should pay this. Now, it was more than tuition at the, the state university that has the highest out-of-state charge, of, of is second highest of any state university in the country. And that's still true to this day. And it was one where my parents had told me I could only go for one year because it cost so much. So um, I really didn't try to go back there the second year because they might want some more money than I could ever come up with. And besides, I didn't want my parents to find out I had done this, although I hadn't really done anything wrong. They should have said, wow, man, guy, what are you a great student? Maybe we can find you a job somewhere. (laughs) That's how it should have been handled. Well, the next year, I went to De Anza College in Cupertino, and a friend from high school had copied the key to the computer room. So we could go in at midnight, and, I could, and we would turn on all the pieces of equipment. He wasn't a programmer, but he knew how to turn everything on. It was an IBM 360 Model 40. 40 and I would just run programs through and read the manuals and get more ideas and write more programs, punch card days. and um, just I just wanted to run so many programs. Now, I took a lot of programming classes there at De Anza, and I took ones that wouldn't even carry any transfer credit to Berkeley, because um, I just wanted to take any program, any class there could be on programming. It got to the point where typically a professor might say, here's a problem, the best solution I've ever had so far is 13 steps of IBM machine language. And then I would, as as my own little deal, I would do it in six steps or seven steps. And um, I just enjoyed programming so much. After that year at um, De Anza, I didn't really have enough money for my third year of college yet. So I took a year off and I worked at a company. Allowed me to get enough money to buy a small car and enough money for my year here at my third year of college here at Berkeley. And while I was working for that company in Sunnyvale, it was actually I walked in the wrong door by mistake. I was looking, I had heard they were going to sell my favorite mini computer of all time, the Data General Nova. This is the computer that I told my dad, someday I'm going to have a 4K Data General Nova mini computer because 4K is enough to run a programming language. And um, he said, it costs as much as a house. And I was a little stymied and it really would cost as much. And I said, well, I'll live in an apartment. <laughs> my trade-off that day was that I was going to have a computer someday even if I didn't have a house, I was going to have a computer. Well, I walked into this place that was going to sell Data General Novas in Sunnyvale, and I walked in the wrong door by accident. And there was a medium-sized computer they were designing and building behind a glass, glass display. Tenant Incorporated. So, my gosh, I applied for a job and got a job as a programmer and went in. I wound up working there for a year. While I was there, I told some of the executives how back in high school I used to design mini computer after mini computer after mini computer and um, I could never get the parts to build them. I couldn't afford the parts to build a computer. He says, well, what if I get you the parts? I said, really? He says, yeah. He had the connections. You know, companies have the connections to the chip companies. So I said, wow, I'll I'll design a computer of my own right away. And I designed (laughs) kind of a minimal computer, got me the chips, built it in a friend's house, three houses down on the street. Bill Fernandez's house, and Bill said, "You got to meet this guy, Steve Jobs, because he's a lot like you. He knows electronics, and he likes pranks, and he goes to the same school. So, so Steve came over. You know, we're out on the sidewalk sizing each other up with our knowledge. You know, how many pranks we've done, and I really think I outdid him by far. <laughs> but uh, Steve had had worked a little stint at Hewlett uh, Packard. He's a guy that can." He's very brave and he can talk his way into anything. And I was so shy, I could never dare ever approach anyone and say anything or try to ask like I'm asking for a favor. He called up Bill Hewlett one day and he says, I I need a job. Can I have a job with you? And he got a job for the suburb kind of a technician job, but he managed to get together some chips that could count and some drivers. And he built himself a little frequency counter that, uh, you know, it would basically tell you what note was being played on a guitar, that sort of thing. And uh, and I told him about all the computers I had designed, and he was always talking about these microprocessors that <coughs> were coming out, you know. And I hadn't really followed microprocessors or heard of them, but just sort of nodded that off. Um, back in those days, I was my head was very free thinking. I kind of accepted the um, the hippie movement, it sort of started in Palo Alto and Menlo Park and then spread up to the Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco, and it was, you know, prominent in the the Bay Area, actually the country by now, and I kind of thought these were the the most elevated thinkers. They came from the academic world, and they were talking about how life should be lived differently. My father was an engineer who taught me to be in the middle and have my feet on the ground and make sensible decisions. And I was going to be like that. And I was going to have an income and a home and be normal. But somehow I was more inspired by the thinking of other people being way out there was a lot more interesting in the world than only having one strict way you're going to think in life. And um, Steve himself was more of the true hippie. Where he would go, you know, and do some drugs and have his bare feet and eat eat from seeds and, and talk about doing, you know, almost things that you have to do with absolutely no money. He had a little bit less than I. I always had money in my life. I never had a worry because I was so smart in electronics, I could always get a job. It's not like you go to college and you graduate in sociology and you say, oh, what do I do now? (laughs) You know, it's like you know what you do. I ran out of high school. I could always go to any electronic company in our area and get a job real easy because I was so advanced. So I never had to worry about money, but Steve didn't really have that much in the way of of jobs yet. He was younger than myself as well. He was like 20. Well, that summer uh, we became best friends. We discovered that we had similar tastes in music, that we both admired music that had words that you had to think about, words that had meaning, not just little nice, sensible little Beatle tunes, but you know, Bob Dylan, you know, some of his early folk stuff is you know, so deeply reaching and affecting in the topics that it discusses and how deep it penetrates. So uh, we'd go to Dylan concerts together and that sort of thing. The day before I was going to my third year of college, starting it here in Berkeley and I consider Berkeley my second home in the world now. For some reason, it just that was just such an incredible time for me here. Um, I go to two places in the world and you have a feeling that, whoa, I'm in my home. One of them is Sunnyvale, my childhood home, the other is whenever I get to Berkeley I get that feeling this day. But the day before I came here to find my dorm and move in, um, I saw a magazine <coughs> in the kitchen. I flipped through it, and it was an Esquire magazine, which I never read. And there was an article, Secrets of the Little Blue Box, an interesting story, which meant to me fiction. And I read this article, and it started talking about All of these strange technical people, engineers who would come out of the phone company, engineers who were smarter than the phone company engineers, and they had figured out all of these mistakes in the phone company and ways to take advantage of them and set up worldwide networks and make free phone calls by putting tones into your telephone, just by playing music tones into your telephone, make free phone calls anywhere in the world with a device called a blue box. Their head guy was named Captain Crunch because he discovered that Captain Crunch cereal had a little whistle and if you blew it, it seized the phone line and put it at your obedient command waiting for instructions where to connect you in the world and it was such a strange story. I was only halfway through it and I had to call my best friend Steve Jobs and start reading it to him. And I was reading in parts like about this Captain Crunch and a strange personality where he's trying to boast about how he, he's a superman that can do anything in the world with the technology, but he really doesn't do it anymore because he's afraid they're tapping his phone as he's saying it to the reporter. And then I said, there's something wrong, Steve. This article doesn't sound like fiction. I mean, it sounds too true. They gave real frequencies in the article. You know, 700 hertz plus 900 hertz makes a 1 for dialing. 700 hertz plus 1,100 hertz makes a 2 for dialing. You know, I want, why did they give some details like that? It just doesn't make sense. So uh, it was a Sunday. Steve and I went down to Slack, Stanford Linear Accelerator Center, found a door open, got into the technical library and started looking for books on the phone system. And I was going through this blue book, CCITT and... All of a sudden, there's a list of the frequencies used in the phone system, and they exactly match what was in the article. And we just looked at each other, just quivering, shaking. The article was true, 100% true. Oh, my God, we tried to make one that afternoon, and didn't quite get it stable enough to, to work for us. But I went off to school. That was a big year. Articles started appearing in various magazines about this group of people called phone freaks. You know, And they were technical people. And they were out there doing something beyond what was supposed to be possible. And a little bit, I had in my mind that they were really truthful to just trying to explore the weaknesses of a system to help get the system made better, to help Ma Bell, not to hurt Ma Bell. And, you know, looking back, most of them, they just wanted to make free calls. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, oh, I got wild. I started t- telling all the people in my dorm. I started telling them all about all oh, one phone freak trick after another and the phone freak personalities and the blind phone freak, Joe Ingresia Jr., who can whistle out of his mouth the tones to make calls anywhere. <laughs> it's really funny because a friend of mine, Kevin Mitnick, one of the famous modern hackers, was uh, put in solitary confinement for eight months because the prosecutor told the judge he could whistle the codes to launch a nuclear strike. <laughs> <laughs> um funny. So anyway, this article, now Steve, I went off to Berkeley, and throughout that year, kept thinking about, I started running programs on the computer over, and it was in Evans Hall, it was a CDC 6600, and that was the computer of the whole campus. There were no other computers. I mean, everyone used that one computer, plus there was an IBM one. Um, We wrote our programs on punch cards here, and around finals time at Berkeley, the the lineup to get onto a key punch to punch out your program, was an hour long. You'd have to wait for an hour to get a free key punch. Well, there were two key punches that weren't used because they were for a different computer, for an IBM computer. And by, I was so much the touch typist that on the key punches, to type capital letters, well, to type special characters, you had to put your left pinky on a key called alpha. And then you had to type with, your, with either hand some other keys. So some of the special characters, like a parenthesis, you might have to type with your pinky of the left hand and another finger of the left hand. There, were, there weren't two equivalents of shift keys, left and right. There was only one on the left. So it was strange, but I had taught myself to just totally touch type all the special characters and everything on a key punch. Well, I went over to those two key punches that weren't in use, and I played around, and I discovered that even though they printed the wrong characters along the top as you typed, they punched the same holes if you touch type if you touch-type the way the other key punch would work. So I never had to wait the hour to get my programs done here. That was my, one my little um, punch card trick from Berkeley. And I sat down, I designed a program, and I calculated out which crystal oscillator to start with, and I designed a little digital blue box that had tricks. I never even did some of those tricks that well in my Apple design days, where one part would do three jobs at once instead of the normal two which is what I used to like to do. and One part's only supposed to do one job, but I had my style. And so I designed this little box that was theoretically a digital blue box, and finally one day, down at Steve's house, um, we managed to make our first call, and it was to Orange County, California. Steve is yelling into the phone, we're calling from California. They're in California, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, We had both told our parents what we were doing with the blue boxes. I had this philosophy that, that it was worse to lie about things than to do them, and that anything I did, even if my parents considered it bad, I'd have to tell them. So I told them what we were doing with blue boxes, and that it was so interesting and exciting, and we weren't going to make our calls and save money on, on phone calls. We were just trying to explore the system, and that I was young, and that if I got caught... It'll you know, it'll get forgotten after a number of years. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, I think my parents liked me being honest about it. They just said, don't use our phone. My <laughs> 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 parents said the same. So after the one phone call, we went up to the dorm and everything from then on was from Norton dorm, Norton Hall.
0: <laughs>
2: <coughs> and it was great to discover the, the all the phone wires of Norton Hall passed through my first floor. It was wide open, and yeah, we could, get, we could tap anybody's phone upstairs. and, and we, had, we had fun doing some, little, um, some other little pranks. But this blue box was completed. I had been telling stories for the year to all, the friend, all my friends on the first floor of Norton Hall and other floors of Norton Hall and around the campus about the phone freaks, and Captain Crunch was the main one. Steve and I stumbled into who he was before the FBI did. So Captain Crunch came to visit us in the dorm one night. You know, and I'm thinking everybody's going to be wanting to get a peek at him, see what he looks like. And he had this reputation for tapping girlfriends' phone lines and all this. And I thought, God, he's going to be a real suave, you know, type guy. And there's a knock at the door. And I walk over the door and open it up. Here's this guy, he's missing his teeth, hair's hanging out. He smells like he hasn't showered in weeks. I said, Are you? And he says, I am he, Captain Crunch. (laughs) Came in that night. He taught us so many codes for dialing special calls around the world, <laughs> <coughs> dial a jokes in faraway cities. And we stayed in Kip's Pizza Parlor until past midnight. And then Steve and I had to drive back home to Los Altos to pick up my car. And I'm OK on this. Yes. Yeah. We had to pick up my car in Los Altos and then drive back to Berkeley for school the next morning, which was, a, 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 I guess, a Monday morning. And as we were driving home, Steve's car broke down. We got out and we walked over to a payphone. We thought, well, we can call back up to Berkeley because our friend Captain Crunch is going to be driving back this way. And right now he's over at Groucho's house. It was a guy named Alan McKittrick. But everybody had their handles for phone freaking in these days. Phone freaking was kind of neat because like ham radio, it was a way you could reach out. And so we called back and, uh, well, we <coughs> first Steve said, should we use the blue box to call? I said, well, Crunch taught us how to use a blue box for a payphone call. Let's try it. And Steve, Steve's on the phone call and all of a sudden he hangs up real fast and he says the operator came on the line. I said well, try it again. You got to tell her it's a data call and the light will flash. And he tells her it's a data call and the light will flash and then he makes the call and he hangs up real quick. He says the operator came on again. So we're really scared. So we put money in and we called up. Then the cops show up. Uh. This was 1971 I guess and the Moog synthesizer was new. The first music synthesizer of all time had been introduced to the Moog synthesizer. When well, a cop came up and he passed us both up and shone his flashlight into the bushes, I think he probably thought that we'd stashed some drugs in there or something. I had really long hair and that sort of look. And while his back was turned, Steve managed to shake, shakingly, get me the blue box into my pocket. Steve didn't have a coat. Now, the cop patted us down and found the blue box. The blue box looked like a calculator with numbers on a keypad, and every number played a tone. So I said, What is it? And I said, It's an electronic music synthesizer. You push the buttons to bank music. I didn't, you know, I didn't try to play a song because it's harder than a touchstone phone to play songs with blue box notes. And the cop says, What's the orange button for? That's the one we seized the phone lines with. So Steve said, that's for calibration. <laughs> <coughs> <coughs> and a second cop comes over, takes the blue box. That's what he's interested in. What's this? I said an electronic music synthesizer. What's the orange button for? Steve Jobs says it's for calibration. It's computer controlled. cop looks at this. and says, where's the computer plug-in? Steve says, oh, it's inside. I don't know they, what they're buying. You know, we know we're we're in trouble. He says, "What's the problem?" Our car broke down. Let's go check. So we get in the cop car in the back of the cop car. The cops are in the front. This cop turns around, hands me back the blue box, and he says, "A guy named Mook beat you to it."
0: <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> um, you couldn't
2: you couldn't make up a story like that. <laughs> we got home to Los Altos that night with a ride, and I got my car and drove back to Berkeley three in the morning fell asleep on Highway 17, totaled my car, walked into the dorm, told my roommate. Good thing I didn't pay the $25 parking fee this quarter. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) So Electronics had a lot of fun. Well, Steve Jobs at some point said, you know what, why don't we sell these blue boxes on the campus? Why don't we sell them? And um, okay, so uh, we can sell them for this much. So we started going door to door. And asking people if they wanted to see demos of this little device that would make free phone calls. And we we went to all the different dorms and we had ways of sizing people up and never got caught because we, you know, we could kind of tell who was okay and who wasn't. (laughs) And that was the first time in my life I was normally very shy, but I was the, the MC. I'd sit on the phone and talk about all the lore and the different phone freaks and what they have done in their lives and here's how the system works and here's how the device works. And we always made them tape record every one of these. We'd pull a bunch of phone pranks and call places far away in the world. We'd love to call around the world and then to the next dorm room over, to their phone. You'd talk in one phone, you'd hear to in the other one a second later. So it was really kind of a cool effect. <coughs> Every time we did this, we sold a blue box. Well... After that year, that was the only year we sold them, I didn't, I didn't, I never wanted to make my own phone calls on Blue Boxes. I was careful. If I was making a call to a relative or something that would cost money, I paid the money. I made a normal phone call. Only used the Blue Box to see how, what I could talk operators into, to getting calls all the way around the world and all. And I thought it was kind of ethical, but looking back on it, I helped other people make free calls, so I wasn't really that good. (laughs) Um, And after that year of college, there was no more need. You kind of tire out of it. It's like, you've done it. You've done this interesting thing. It's fascinating. Now they're putting in methods they're going to catch people. Forget it. So I went out and I got a job as an electronic technician for six months. And then the hot product in the world in 1972 was the Hewlett-Packard Scientific Calculator. This was the first time ever a little handheld device could actually calculate transcendentals, exponentials and inverses and uh, sine, cosine, tangent, logarithms, all that. And it was beautiful because before that, we had slide rules. And slide rules, you kind of had to guess with your eye if something was at 3.58 or 3.57. You had to be really good. And I was the slide rule whiz back in high school. And all engineers, all engineering courses, you just sat there constantly calculating on slide rules. That's how it was done. So now this calculator had come out, and within a couple of years, slide rules were going to no longer be manufactured. This calculator is going to replace them all. It cost $400, so that's probably like 2000 3000 of today's dollars, a lot of money, very expensive. Oh, I put everything I had in and bought one of those calculators. Oddly enough, somehow they heard from a friend of mine who worked there that I had all this great computer design experience. So they called me in for an interview. Interviewed me right away, gave me an offer to become an engineer at Hewlett-Packard, designing calculators for the hottest product in the world. Right after their, this is right after their first calculator. So I had the job of a lifetime. You know, when you get a lucky opportunity like that, be sure to take it. (coughs) I would sit down, look at designs, try to add some new features to them you know, and do this and figure out other ways to make faster calculators and lower powered ones and that sort of thing. And one of the things is I had to run programs to check my work. To run programs, we had one big Hewlett Packard computer that was shared by about 40 engineers. We would sign up for time on it go in, run our programs, and my programs would just check the 1s and zeros going through my circuits and make sure that everything I did was okay, because then you're going to make a chip out of it. When you make the chip, it takes 6 to 9 months to make a chip, and it better not have any bugs when it comes out, or it takes another 6 to 9 months to correct it. You have to be very careful. So I wrote these simulations to simulate how my chips would work. But it was very slow, and I had to wait for other engineers to give me the time. While I was working at Hewlett-Packard, I still had this lifelong passion for engineering, for electronics, for building devices that do neat things. So when I came home from work, instead of drinking beer and watching you know, sports, I'd sit down and start designing, doing other do technical projects. One of the first ones I did was a Dial-A-Joke, the first Dial-A-Joke machine in the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area. Now you'll meet a lot of people in your life who started companies, who ran companies, who were CEOs, but this is the only time in your life you're ever going to meet a person who can say they started the first Dial-A-Joke in a regional area. There's just too few of us, and it was very hard to start a Dial-A-Joke, an answering machine, where people would dial a certain number and it would tell them a joke. Here's how hard it was. Back then, you were not allowed to own or purchase a telephone. You were not allowed to own or purchase an answering machine in the United States because we had a monopoly. You could only lease the one machine that they said you could have, the one phone they said you could have. And so the one answering machine was a very expensive Codafone 700 that the theaters used, and it cost me as much as my apartment rental. So, you know, when you're a young engineer and you want to do a dial a joke, you have to pay your apartment rent twice just to do it. So, what I would do is record a joke, short joke every day, usually a Polish joke. <coughs> <coughs> and I figured, by name being Polish, that was sort of okay. And, um, and the Polish American Congress Incorporated threatened me with a lawsuit for defaming people of Polish descent, making them look stupid. And I said, what if I change the jokes to Italian? Jokes. They said, That's fine. <laughs> this was long before political correctness. There was no concept of political correctness yet. So I would switch the jokes to Italian jokes, and it was great. I would go home from work sometimes, and I would take live jokes. I loved doing it live. Hello, thank you for dialing. Dial a joke. Hey, what kind of joke you want to hear today? They would chuckle. No, I'm live. I'm really live, and they chuckle. And I'd say, no, you've got to try me. I'm really here. This is a person. They'd say, what is, what's going on, Cheryl? I'd say, hey, Cheryl, I heard your name. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he is live. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I started making lists. All the kids in the various schools, I would ask them strange things about their schools, strange things about their teachers, and I kept lists. So when somebody called from Oak Grove High School, I'd say, oh, does does Mr. Wilson still wear those red pants? Oh, they thought I knew everything. I was such a... (laughs) This was great because I was anonymous. It was almost like a chat room. It was almost like today's Internet forums where you you aren't known who you really are. So it really was a way out of my shyness while I was on the phone. I was the sort of person who never thought I'd meet a girl or get married. I met my first wife on Dial-A-Joke. She called me. And all I said was, I can hang up faster than you. And I did. <laughs> that was a good start. <laughs> I, I, loved, I loved that machine. Um, also, uh, there was the first company came out to make a, a VCR for consumers. Up until then, there were VCRs that could record video and they were sold into schools and universities. And they were expensive. You'd buy a black and white VCR for 1000 dollars The first consumer VCR came out. <coughs> Does anyone <coughs> excuse me? Does anyone have a guess what the first consumer VCR was? A lot of people say Sony Betamax. But actually there was one before it, and it was an American company: KartraVision. Anybody hear of Cartravision? <laughs> Cartravision Vision had this weird machine where they actually put the traces of a PC board where the little filaments of a motor, where they were the windings of a motor, and that the PC board that spun around with the writing head, the helical head that writes the data onto the tape, spun around, and the PC board itself was the motor. I mean, it was a very interesting structure. But it, uh, by going through all the manuals and the data sheets, it refreshed all of my knowledge of color TV <coughs> and how it worked. Well, we entered. I discovered there was a place in San Jose where they were duplicating some of their first software. A few really lousy movies that they were making available for this machine. They were duplicating it in San Jose. Well, they went bankrupt right away. And they had tons of machines that they were selling, unused VCRs, color VCRs, with timers even, for 60 bucks each. So I would take groups of engineers from Hewlett Packard, drive them down, and we'd buy them for 60 bucks each. We'd buy our VCRs and take them home and hook them up and get them recording things. So even before Sony had a Betamax, I actually managed to record Richard Nixon resigning on TV. So that dates me as being before anybody else who had a VCR usually. <laughs> I always liked to get into these things a little bit first, but I had no money. I always had to find the ways to do it for free. <coughs> Fortunately, a lot of my side projects, I could get the electronic parts for free or very low cost. Hewlett-Packard had a policy that engineers could build something of their own design. They could have the parts out of the stockroom with their supervisor's approval. I think it was a really useful product that they figured that your mind evolves as you design these things. So um, another project that I did on the side was a home pinball game. And I just designed all the logic for some flippers and all that and gave it to these people. Another one, I f- flew down to Los Angeles and designed out the digital part of a system that would put movies into a hotel room TV set. This is before it ever existed. So incredible to get, get known, or known and get so many jobs of these technologies that were going to come and change the world so much and become commonplace. One day I was in a bowling alley with my fiancé, and I saw Pong. Pong was a little game with a little TV display and a ball bouncing back and forth. Take yourself back. Before Pong, all the pinball games were hard, physical, click, 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 click. Pinball games with balls bouncing around, no electronics, no lights, no um, no real fancy um, displays like video displays. And here's this little TV screen. To play Pong, you had to put in 25 cents. For all of the other pinball games, you only put in 10 cents, so it cost more, but it was mesmerizing to think on this little tiny black and white screen that they could have a ball and paddles and click-click sounds that that could ever be done in the world. Part of its value was being so novel and so unexpected and state-of-the-art, and I looked at it and I said, you know, the thought popped in my head, I could build one of these. I could make one of these, I told my fiance because I know digital logic, I can design about anything, and I know the television signals, what you have to put out to make, make dots and colors on a television set. Well, black and white. So I sat down, and I was good at designing things with very few parts. I wound up with 28 little low-cost chips. These are the sort of chips that are $1 each. 28 of these little chips putting out timing pulses on a wire that I snaked into my TV set. I unscrewed the back of my TV set, because they didn't have video in back then, and tested with an <laughs> oscilloscope, and I found where the where the video signals were, and I made my video put a little transistor circuit to make my video circuit the right voltages, the right polarity, and it worked on the screen. I'd have balls. I just basically I was putting out pulses that turned up as a ball on the screen that would move, and paddles that would move up and down, and little nets and scores and things. And I put in two of these chips we had at Hewlett Packard that we could program data into the chips. They were called prompts program data in and it stays in the chips permanently. And so I put them in there and then whenever you missed the ball it would put a four letter word on the screen. <laughs> <coughs> like heck and darn. <laughs> um, and uh, I took that and showed it off to my friends, friendly, my engineers at Hewlett Packard. We were all such good buddies. We had such a camaraderie. We had pilots and we'd go flying off on lunch trips all the time. First small plane flight of my life, <clears throat> I'm in a plane with Myron Tuttle. And we came into Rio Vista, California and landed, bounce, 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 bounce. Said, wow, these small planes are a lot different than commercial planes. And what I didn't know was the other pilots were discussing whether they would even let Myron fly us back to San Jose.
0: <laughs>
2: so and when he flew us back to San Jose, they figured it's a two-mile-long runway, you know, it'll be okay. Flew us back to San Jose, hit that runway, bounced way up, came back down, there's a scraping sound, and <laughs> da, da, da boy, by the time he got to the end, they told him, you've lost your license, get, turn around, get back here, this and that. In the plane, we're all Myron's friends, but we're, sh- we're, we're just white sheets. We're not talking, we're silent, we're scared, what's going on? He finally taxis back, about ten minutes has gone on, we get out of the plane and I think, well, we've got to show him we're still his friend got to say something. So I looked around for small talk. My idea of small talk, I was so technical, I always looked for something technical, like, like uh, you know, look at the size of that display or something. I said, I said, wow, it's interesting how they bend the propeller over. Is that for aerodynamic reasons? <laughs> 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 <something>, they don't. <laughs> how could I pick the one thing? <laughs> so we mounted his propeller up in our Hewlett-Packard calculator lab for the next year. It was mounted on the wall. <coughs> um... That was a lot of fun. Uh, so, so we had this just great group there. Well, the next thing, after I had the pawn game, I went over to visit my old friend Captain Crunch. And by this point in time, he'd only been arrested a couple of times, so he hadn't been to prison yet. And he was typing away on an old teletype. A teletype is one of those mechanical machines you see in movies that type real slowly. Tick 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 like like in hackers when they want to make it look like there's something kind of old and retro in computers. That's how they'll display the characters. These teletypes were real. They could you could punch real slowly to type things and it would type back very slowly only words. And he's typing away and he says, "I'm playing chess with a computer in Boston at MIT." And that was kind of impressive because I always liked when you could reach out beyond where you were. This was back in an age where almost no one could make, you know, very many long-distance phone calls or phone calls to other countries because they were so expensive. And to think of uh, reaching a computer that far away, sure, we could dial on a modem, a 110 baud modem, to a computer in a local city. And there were some systems being sold to schools where your school could dial in and kind of run on sort of a, a, a big computer that was somewhat distant. But he showed me, here's a list of computers I can switch to. I can go to Berkeley or Stanford or Santa Barbara or, or San Diego or Illinois or, or a couple out there on the East Coast. Wow, that was so impressive. If you had that, you would be a Superman. If you had that, you'd be a star. And um, <coughs> same thing went through my head as with Pong. I've got to have that. But I know I can have it because I can design it. What I'll do is design a circuit that instead of putting little dots on my screen that add up to balls and paddles, it'll add up to characters of the alphabet. So I'll just display alphabets on my home TV. The home TV is the only output device I could ever afford that's free. But now what am I going to type on? So I started coming into Hewlett Packard at 6 in the morning. Because I, I knew I was on to some important stuff in life. And I'd come in at 6 in the morning and go through manuals, tear out pages, make notes in the, of the magazines of the parts that were going to matter to this sort of a product. And I finally found a keyboard I could buy for $60. That's like $500 today. So that's, we're talking some you know real expensive. That was the most expensive part of all the Apple computers that I bought. I found, I found this keyboard. And I ordered one. So now I had a keyboard to type on. And by the time I finished my product and built a modem, I could call a number at Stanford, get on the ARPANET. (coughs) The ARPANET was the forerunner of today's Internet. And from the ARPANET, I could get over to the computer at MIT, or at Berkeley, or wherever, and look what they had for guests. Every one of the computers had some guest facilities. And I would type on my keyboard, and the words that I typed went to that computer out in Boston. And the, the words that that computer from Boston typed back to me would pop up on my TV set. And it was really cool. I'd take this into Hewlett-Packard and show it off. And, and I, I mean, I just loved this little device. It was neat. I didn't really have much use for what was on those computers. So I never used them to run programs or anything. I only, called, I only used them about three times. But then I had built the device, in other words, building the device was more important and having it was more important than using it to me. Steve Jobs came by and he said, look, there's a local time-sharing outfit in Mountain View called Call Computer and they have all these big teletypes that cost thousands of dollars and they have a few video screens that cost even more thousands of dollars and their customers are tired of paying that much money, why don't we build them this little cheap one, you know, it's just a little board that could be built for, you know, a hundred bucks and it'll work with any TV set. Uh, which is kind of cheap, and then a keyboard, and uh, I agreed to it with it, so we actually sold it to Call Computer, we sold some of that terminal, and then my friend Alan Baum called me up one day and he said, <coughs> there's a group of people at People's Computer Company in Menlo Park, and they're starting a new club for people who have video terminals and things. And it's a very good thing he said video terminals, because I thought, wow, I'll stand out like a star. I've got my great design. I designed it with the cheapest parts you can have, and very few of them, and um, clever design. I'll show it off. I'll go to this meeting. He didn't say it was uh, people that were interested in microprocessors, or people that were interested in computers made of microprocessors, because if he had, I wouldn't have gone. I would have been too shy. I would have said, I don't know anything about microprocessors. I don't want to go out of my environment. I'm too shy. We definitely wouldn't have gone. So I went to this meeting, and I was embarrassed. I was very embarrassed. It was the first meeting of the Homebrew Computer Club. Everybody knew that the front page page of Popular Electronics Magazine had displayed this so-called computer called the Altair. You build it yourself, and actually what you built only had 256 bytes of RAM, a bunch of switches and lights you could toggle, and buttons to press to get things into memory. And I thought back to that little computer i built when I met Steve Jobs. <coughs> the same thing. Switches and lights, push the button to get it into memory. I mean, it was really the same thing. It would already been there. 256 bytes of RAM. <coughs> but people were talking about this altar as being a real computer that would be programmed to do the jobs that computers do someday. And like I said, I was embarrassed because I didn't know anything about it or microprocessors, but they passed out a data sheet to a microprocessor at that meeting. So I went home, Steve didn't go to this meeting, he wasn't at the Homebrew Computer Club in the early days, but I went home and um, read the data sheet and I said, whoa, these microprocessors are just like those mini computers that I designed so many of in high school. And I said, I'm in business. All of a sudden, I remembered I was going to have a computer someday in my life. And now I saw, I can get a microprocessor chip as the heart of the computer, the brains, And I've already got a display on my television set and a keyboard I can type on, and it's like I am there for no money at all, almost no money at all. I'm going to have that computer, a 4K computer. Why a 4K computer? Because 4K bytes was the minimum you needed to run a programming language, Fortran. That's the scientific language I was used to. Well, I uh, first looked into Intel, had some microprocessors, but Intel was so expensive they were 400 bucks each, too much. I don't know when I could be able to afford that much. And then I found out that my company, Hewlett Packard, offered Motorola microprocessors, the 6800 8-bit microprocessor, for $40. Oh! So I came in and I said, what I'm going to do is take my computer, my, my terminal that talks to a computer in Boston. Instead of having it talk to a computer in Boston, I'll have it talk to a little microprocessor and some RAM right here on the same board. So I'll just build my computer on the same board. So I'll take an existing product I have and then add a microprocessor, add a computer to it. So I'll have the computer local. And I went into Hewlett-Packard late at nights, and I would draft it on the drafting board and designed it all up for the Motorola microprocessor. And then a company out in Pennsylvania announced the latest, greatest microprocessor, <coughs> the MOS Technology 6502. Furthermore, the 6502 was going to be sold at a show in San Francisco called Westcon over-the-counter. So you could pay $20 bill over-the-counter and get a microprocessor back. This was unheard of for such a low price. If you wanted to buy an Intel microprocessor, you'd have to go to some distributor. They'd give you all of these forms that you have to fill out, assuming you have a company, and you have P.O. box numbers, and you have tax, state tax numbers, all these confusing things. To buy a microprocessor yourself was nearly impossible. So this was a way to do it. <coughs> I and many of the members of our club went to that show in San Francisco and bought our 6502 microprocessors. It was pin for pin compa- electronically compatible with the Motorola one that I had done my design for it, Hewlett Packard. So I came in late one night and I started plugging the chips into uh, the board. And oh, I had this other idea. All the computers in those days, when you built a computer, you took a microprocessor and some memory and a standard bus that went to a bunch of cards that could get plugged in, and then you had this front panel. You would dial in a number in binary, one oh one oh one oh. You'd just toggle some switches and you push a button and that becomes an address. Then you toggle the switches and push a different button and they would go to that address in memory. Toggle in more bytes and you could spend half an hour, half an hour to get about 20 or <coughs> 30 bytes into memory and it was a little program you'd written and then you could tell it to run that program from the front panel and it might twiddle the lights a certain way. Very difficult, slow, slow, slow process. At the best, even if you bought enough memory boards to someday run a computer language, which was too expensive to do, and you bought a teletype that cost thousands of dollars, much more than this supposed computer, and you bought Bill Gates Basic, which came out, on paper tape, you could toggle in, bit by bit, for half an hour, a little program that would start reading in the teletype paper tape, get it into memory, and now you could write a program in the language basic very very long and difficult process to do that and I thought I already built my own computer when I met Steve Jobs with the front panel and the switches and lights and it looked like an airplane cockpit I said look at our calculators at Hewlett Packard (coughs) we basically have a computer inside but we hide it from the users the users see normal buttons that a human can use you press what, what happens is our computer would be sitting there saying is any key being pressed and when you press the four button this computer says, what key is being pressed? It's a 4. Put a 4 in the display and come back, what key is being pressed? And when you press Add, it would go and do an addition and put the sum in the display. And I said, why don't I just write a short little program that looks at my keyboard that I'm already typing on with my terminal, looks at the keyboard and says, what's the user typing? And every character I type, it'll read it into memory until I hit a return. And then it'll try to decode what I told it to do and stuff some data into memory or display some memory on my television set or run a program somewhere and basically skip that whole front panel. Now the reason I have for skipping the front panel is it's big, it's ugly, it's expensive and it's a lot of work. I'm lazy. Big front panel, drill some holes in a piece of metal, mount a bunch of switches, hook the wires down to your board, put a bunch of chips to get the data into memory. No, it's just way, way, way too much. All I need is a little program. Now. I had two of these PROM chips that you could program data in and it stays, non-volatile, so you could put a little program into PROM. When you turn the computer on, the program is there ready to run. But it took two chips to have 256 bytes of a program. That's how few transistors we had on chips back in those days. (coughs) The Hewlett-Packard scientific calculators used a, um, a mathematical system called reverse Polish notation not because it was better but because it took less code to program and so we we had very little programming building those days well i took two of those chips and i went over to another hewlett hacker division and, and had them burn two programs that i had written two different sets one using interrupts one not Came back to my, uh, my workbench at night at Hewlett-Packard. I'd check in late every night and solder the wires together. Every little chip would get wired up according to my design. Check it on the oscilloscope, make sure. I got it to the point that I thought the microprocessor was running, and then I stuck in my program. And by about 10 p.m. that night, I actually got it working to where I could type on a keyboard and see it on the screen, and I had a computer that had no front panel ever. Every computer before this one had had a front panel. Every computer after the Apple 1 was going to have a keyboard. It was just a whole change in the whole paradigm of what what was a computer to people. Well, I took my project down to the Homebrew Computer Club. This club had a leader, Lee Felsenstein, who would direct 500 of us to one at a time. He would call on us and we would offer help. I have some parts if somebody needs it for this particular use Somebody else would say, I have a certain teletype and it's lost, a, it's lost some kind of a spring. Does anyone know where I can get one? So people would link up. Some people would say there's company rumors. Here's how computers are going to be used. We had a few um, theorists that came from actually Berkeley and Stanford that would talk about the social implications of computers in the new world. And that was what really inspired me, to hear how everyone was, how especially the little person with a computer and a brain was gonna be able to write programs and do more work than their entire big company could do. It was like the little guy was gonna, the little guy who was smart with a computer was gonna have more power than the most powerful um, entities in existence. And uh, all of a sudden, and you know, nine-tenths of our brain is unused. Now it's all going to be used because we're all going to have computers. Kids are going to be learning on computers. And um, it was just so exciting to hear. People would now be able to leave messages on bulletin board systems, and thousands of people could check and find out that the anti-war protest has been changed to this site and, and get there successfully. Um, a lot of the people in the club came from, you know, these, they had a big you know, social protest background, too. But it was just so exciting that we were doing good for the world. We, we believed we were going to turn the world around and help because the big companies, the big companies like IBM, Hewlett Packard and others said, oh no, 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 we're not interested. This is just a little hobby market. It's going to go nowhere. These microprocessors are not really the future. The trouble is they did their market research by inquiring of their current users, would you want these little machines that have about so much capacity, capability? And all their current users said, oh, no, 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 we have no need for that kind of machine. We need the big one that does what it does today. The trouble is, in their market research, they did not talk to the people that didn't have computers. The dentists of the world, the teachers of the world, the lawyers of the world, a lot of the normal people that were going to wind up buying that would really love to have a low-cost machine that called itself a computer and could do what a computer does. The car salesman. So they didn't have any way to tap these other things that weren't com- known computer markets yet. And that's why their market research didn't tell them it was very important. But it helps for us on because we thought we, we knew we were on a revolution. For about two years, our club met, and we just talked about how this was going to be a revolution and turn the world upside down, and all the big companies uh, were denying it and missing it. A bunch of small, little companies were springing out of our club, and they were springing up around the country from people who read the magazines that were talking about this microcomputer world of the future. They were springing up to develop little boards or entire computer kits of their own. Each one would buy some Intel chips, get it to work in a computer, and then sell it as, this is a computer, and it's really just a glorified microprocessor kit. Well, Steve came along. Oh, I was—I went to my club and I felt I was so inspired by the fact that we were doing good for the world that I passed out schematics and code listings of my Apple One computer. It wasn't called the Apple One, but of my computer, I would pass them out for free and say, build your own. Here's what you need. You can build your own now. You can build your own. Showed every chip you needed and all the parts and how to hook them together. Not many people took the time to hook them together. So, uh, I went over to one friend's house that I met at the club, you know, and I spent quite a long time for a few nights soldering it all together myself for him. So, you know, I would help them build their own too. Steve Jobs came by. He started coming to the club and he said, look, there's a whole bunch of people that like you showing off this computer that you're working on. How you could type memory in and type a little program in and have characters come out on the screen. A bunch of people, why don't we uh, make a PC board? So, the whole idea to start Apple wasn't even to build a computer let's make a pc board a component for twenty dollars and sell it for forty dollars that way the people in the club they know how to get their chips from surplus stores or from their work plug the chips in and they're done they'll make a computer (laughs) we figured out that we'd have to sell about 50 of them to make a profit and i didn't know if we'd sell 50 of them because you know i just knew about you know 50 people hanging around me at the computer club but i'm not sure they're all going to buy it Steve said, yeah, but we may lose our money, but for once in our life, we, the two of us can have a company of our own. Oh, my God, who could turn that down? You just have to think of it the right way. It's not a company to make money. It's a, uh, to, you know, the two of us doing something together. So I sold my most valuable possession, my HP 65 calculator, for $500, knowing full well that we were coming out with the HP 67 the next month, and my employee price would be $370. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, Steve sold a van,
2: put a few hundred bucks together. We paid a friend of Steve's from Atari, where he did odd, some sometime jobs, and um, paid him to lay out a PC board. Backtracking just a little, Steve went on, had gone off to college here, and I didn't talk about that, but um, while I was working at Hewlett Packard, I would drive him up. He wanted to go to Reed College in Portland, Oregon, because Reed College had a physicist who had won a Nobel Prize, or a chemist, I think it was a physicist, And Steve was always impressed by the world had a few of these very, very special people that kind of really influenced all thought and and all products. And they did the great things, the Einsteins, the Shakespeare's, the Isaac Newtons. And they were the ones that were influential. And Steve really always wanted to be one of them. He always saw himself as one of those people. And that was was his dream in life. So uh, he wanted to hang around there. But when we got to college, I drove him up and classes started he wasn't going to any of the classes he showed me a list and he says they want you to take this course and this course and this course all these dumb things i want to learn about shakespeare and you know and and whatever calligraphy and all these these uh, great things you can learn about in college and i don't want to do this so he spent he would stay in a tent with his girlfriend in the dorm room and never went to classes (laughs) and then i i guess throughout the time i would be up to be up there to visit once in a while up in portland and he somehow found a way to stay for a couple of years without paying tuition, without paying any dorm fees. He could talk his way into anything. He was, he's a very convincing person. And it really comes from a, a, a natural intelligence and a way of thinking things out quietly among himself and having a lot of the answers, being able to express things very well and get them across um, to other people, having the answers to all the questions. <coughs> and being very persuasive. So He stayed there, but then he came back and he got a job at Atari. And uh, this was incredible. Atari was the company that was bringing arcade games to arcades, bringing video games to arcades. What a change in the world. How incredible. And here they were, right in Silicon Valley, right in Los Gatos, the town I live in today. And I would go down some nights and see the new games they were coming out with, and I showed them my pawn game I had built. And they tried to hire me right away, and I said, Nope, I'm an engineer for life. I want to be an engineer my whole life. I don't want to go up to management level. At Hewlett-Packard, you can grow up and be an old engineer. You can keep doing what you love to do. And I'm going to be at Hewlett-Packard forever. Hewlett-Packard was started by engineers. Hewlett-Packard is full of engineers at every level of the company. And all of the thoughts of new products come from either above or below. Anybody in the company can come up with the ideas that are going to influence the direction of that company. And it's a place that I want to be. I want to be an engineer's engineer, building the products that engineers use and I'll never leave Hewlett Packard. So they couldn't hire me at Atari, but then Nolan Bushnell of Atari came up with this idea to build a one-player Pong game, which is called Breakout. Steve Jobs approached me one day and he said, let's do, could you do this one-player Pong game? And he described it, where the ball hits bricks to bounce back. And I said, yeah, I could do that. He says, would you do it? Oh my God, anything to make a real game that people are going to play? This is the one chance in a lifetime. Are you kidding? And he said, well, the hitches have to do it in four days. (laughs) Now, this was normally a six-month project. This is back when games were not programs. A game was, you had to take (coughs) chips that could go zero, one, twiddle around, and you had to hook them all together so you got the right little pulses out at the exact right time that showed up as balls and paddles on a TV set. There was hardware in those days. It was a very difficult way to design something. You couldn't just program a ball moving. So, four days and nights, I mean, I was... Kind of the hotshot designer of almost all time, known throughout Hewlett-Packard even for my low, low parts counts in chips and things. And I said, I'll try. Four days and nights, we didn't get any sleep. We both got mononucleosis. (coughs) Delivered a working game to Atari. Uh, It was really, really a fascinating project. While I was there, I was losing so much sleep. My mind was kind of you know half awake half asleep it's a very creative state in your life <laughs> and, and a lot of ideas popped in my head that in those four nights a lot of ideas were popping in my head that were going to stick with me and really um, have a major influence um on one they had a Atari had this one game and it was always on a black and white tv for cost reasons Little ball moving across, but they put some mylar overlays that were red, blue, green, orange. So as the ball moved, it seemed to change colors: red, blue, red, blue, green, orange, red, blue, green, orange. Red, blue. It was just the ball is changing colors, and it was so mesmerizing. I thought, wow, color in a game is just so great when they have that someday. And then, for some reason, an idea popped in my head, and I said, what if I take some zeros and ones in a little shift register chip, a little one-dollar chip? and I rotate it around at the exact right speed, I'll get a signal out that goes high and low and high and low and up and down and up and down at exactly a certain rate. And what if I make that rate exactly the rate of colored television in the United States? Where a signal that goes up and down, gradually up and down, represents red. And if it comes a little bit later in time, it represents blue. And a little bit later in time, it might be purple. And I said, well, what if I shift my zeros and ones around in this little shift register? I could make it come a little later in time, up and down, and it'll be red instead of blue, or purple instead of green. And what if I put more ones in than zeros into the shift register bits, the four bits? It might stay up more than it is down, and white is more up than down in American Color TV. And what if I put more zeros in? It'll be sort of down more than it's up. It'll be going at the exact proper rate to make color on a color set, but it'll be down more, and that's sort of darker, so I'll have some dark colors. Dark colors, light colors, medium colors, and grays. And it was just a weird idea, and I didn't think it would really work, but it was neat. worth keeping in my mind. Another idea I got, Steve Jobs was again saying that they were going to use microprocessors soon in the games. And I'm thinking, wow, someday you're going to these games are going to turn into programs to program a microprocessor to do a million things a second and to make the, the bits and dots move around on the screen that's going to be an interesting day well after that project um, and um, yeah, we didn't get paid too much for it but um, uh, let's see what came next <laughs> that was back in the past now I'm in the homebrew computer club giving away my, my schematics Steve Jobs said let's start a company well, one time he came back from, from Oregon, I picked him up at the airport, and he said, um, oh, by the way, we did that when we did that game for Atari, the breakout game, Steve needed the money in four days, so he could buy into, buy a share into an, an orchard up in Oregon. And I don't know what kind of orchard it was. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually, he flew back, and he got in the car, and we're driving down Highway 85, and I said, I said uh, he said, I got a great name for the company. I said, what? He says, Apple Computer. I said, what about Apple Records? I mean, we're nothing. (laughs) He says, well, that's a record company. We're a computer company. So I said, oh, he knows these things. (laughs) And then in the back of my head, I don't ask questions about where people get ideas from. Steve doesn't tell them. Very often I run into other people, and they tell me more of the story that I didn't know, because he never really expresses where he gets his ideas and things. And I mean, yeah. Just tonight, I heard that he got the, the dynamic RAMs that I needed when I was building my first little computer. And I said, you've got to have dynamic RAMs. It's the first time RAMs are ever cheaper than magnetic core memories. And the and he said, would you want the Intel ones? I said, too expensive. He said, what if I can get them for free? I said, yeah, they're the best electrically. You have the smaller packages and this and that and um, better design. He got him from so he Moore. got him, and somebody just told me no, he got him from Gordon Moore. Well, I didn't know. I never got told that.
0: That's what Gordon Moore told me. So I think he's
2: the That's what Gordon Moore said. It might have been two incidences too, but anyway, Steve doesn't always say where he gets his ideas. So I always assumed they had apple trees up in that Oregon and or- that orchard in Oregon where he worked. That was my best guess, but it may not. Maybe the idea comes and you don't have a reason for it. Although Apple Records was so well known a name back then from the Beatles, that was the big record company of all time. So we started Apple. Well, Steve called me over to an apartment of a third person, and we set up this little partnership, not a corporation, a partnership. Steve had 45%, I had 45%, and Ron Wayne had 10%. And Ron Wayne spoke with absolute incre- in immediate answers to everything. He just knew everything in life, about companies, this and that, and he was an ultra-right-winger. He'd read all these ultra-right-wing books, but I didn't know that or what it was about. I was non-political. And, um, so Ron Wayne would sit down and type out our partnership agreement with all the legalese words in it, and he would sit there and he drew a, he sketched Newton under the apple tree for the c- the cover of our Apple One manual. And he did the manual, prepared the manual. He was doing a lot of these little side jobs and... Then we were going to sell these PC, we got our first PC board made. I took it into Hewlett Packard. I showed it to my engineer friends. <coughs> oh, Let me skip a step. Before we went that far, before Steve and I invested any money, I said, Hey, anything I design belongs to Hewlett Packard, I think. So let me check it out with them. I tried to persuade Hewlett Packard to do this product. I told them you could build an $800 machine that would do basic on your RCA TV set at home. And they said, well, if it's an RCA TV or a Zenith TV and the picture's bad, who do you blame? Is it, is it Hewlett-Packard? Is it Zenith? Uh, you know, we can't resolve that issue. And they turned it down. I met with my boss, his boss, and the lab manager was his boss, and they turned it down. I actually got turned down five times by Hewlett-Packard to do this thing. But they would have done it wrong anyway. They wouldn't have done a nice, fanciful project product like what we finally came up with. So Hewlett-Packard turned down. I brought the PC board in, showed it off to my engineers, and the phone rang. It was Steve Jobs. And he said, are you sitting down? So I sat on a lab bench. And then he says, a lab stool. And then he says, I got a $50,000 order. <coughs> this is something where we each put in a few hundred bucks, expecting to sell PC boards for 40 bucks each. He got a $50,000 order. My salary at Hewlett-Packard then was $24,000 a year. So this was... Whoa, that was the biggest financial shock in all of Apple's history, up to this day.
0: <laughs>
2: uh, it rather was, all of a sudden, whoa, we have something like a real company. Now I got scared, so I went to Hewlett-Packard's legal department, and I had them pass around my description to every single division of Hewlett-Packard. None of them wanted what we were doing, so we were off and running. I was working at Hewlett-Packard, designing these computers on the side. Um, we went into production with the Apple One, we started getting known. We flew out to a show in Atlantic City called PC76, and there we saw about 20 other companies that were two young people in their young 20s, you know, not with any money or anything, just having little kits of parts that they were selling to build your own microprocessor kits. And it was so neat to see there's a lot of other people like us. While we were flying out there though, in, the, in just a short, short, short time, I had actually designed another computer from the ground up. I never designed the Apple One from the ground up. I took an existing terminal I had at home that could talk to a computer in Boston, and I made the computer part of the terminal. The new computer from the ground up, I sat down and I started designing the little circuits that were really a color television generator, not a computer. The timing circuits were for color television. And then I, I had those signals drive the computer. And I built it up, and by the time I was done, it was, I combined one part after another after another. I looked into the timing circuits for the dynamic memories. And instead of five chips calculating when signals go up and when they go down, I came up with a little two-chip circuit called a state machine. I had taken a state machine course here at Berkeley. And it just put out the signals exactly right in timing. All the signals are rammed. And then I searched through my manuals like I would for sometimes for two weeks. It's like you hear about, um, Hemingway would spend two weeks trying to get the words exactly right for one sentence. I was like that when it came to chips or pieces of code. I would just keep searching searching, and I found one little chip with the right feedback that this one chip put out exactly the right timing signals the RAMs needed. I condensed everything down to so few chips. It was half as many chips as the Apple one, Ten times the computer, the first time ever the world was gonna see or imagine that color would come into such a low a low cost small computer. First time ever with graphics, the first time ever with high resolution. I put in paddles and sound so I could even play games. I had written the basic myself. Now <coughs> I had never taken a course in computer languages, how to design them, how to build them, how to write them, but I sniffed the wind and you need one to have a computer. And Bill Gates was getting a little bit famous. He had written a BASIC for the Intel chips. I thought, wow, what if I, Steve Wozniak, write the first BASIC for the 6502 microprocessor? And I didn't hear there wasn't another one around, so I got to work right away. Now, I couldn't afford to type my program into a computer. You know that you always type any program you write into a computer. And the computer figures out what's right and wrong and converts it into zeros and ones, and it'll run as a program. I couldn't afford that, so what I did was, I wrote my program on the right hand side of a sheet of paper, and then on the left hand side, I figured out what the zeros and ones it would convert to were, including certain mat- branches that had to be in binary and all this stuff. It was very, very difficult. So I have an inch thick for the Apple II, an inch thick of documents of all the code that was in there, all handwritten. Never once typed in a computer. I couldn't afford it. I couldn't even afford to assembler to assemble it. And um, not one bug has ever come up in the Apple II hardware or the software. Because you get so intimately close to the software when you're writing it that way. Everything is by hand. It's out of your own body. It's a piece of yourself, too. It has to be so perfect. It represents you. Well, this Apple II was a hot product. So at PC76 in Atlantic City, we went down late one night and put it on one of the first video projectors I've ever seen in my life. The guy who ran the video projector said, this is the one I want and he could see all the different offerings from everybody of low-cost small computers and he said this is the one I want. We knew that we had something with the Apple II. The Apple I was the first computer ever to use a keyboard, a new normal human keyboard for entry. After that, a company up here in Emeryville, Processor Technology and the guys had gone to Berkeley, they were in our computer club, designed a computer called the SOL, the S-O-L, and it had a keyboard and a little video display. They were hanging around our club. They saw what I'd done. And then the Apple II was to be the third computer ever to have a keyboard. But we knew that this Apple II was going to outsell the Saul, and it was selling 1000 a month. And we would sell 1000 a month. How do you make 1000 computers when they cost $250 each to build? You need $250,000, and that's like millions of today's dollars. It's a lot of money. So Steve and I went to Commodore. And we tried to pitch them on this computer, and they said, no, we do our own. People really don't want to pay that much for color and all that stuff. The trouble is, they didn't realize the color didn't cost us anything because I had designed it. It was just—it was almost for free. So then we went to Atari, and they were too busy with their first Home Pong game. And then we went to Venture Capitalists, and they said, well, you're not really businessmen. I mean, they'd say, what's the market? I would say a million. They'd say, how do you know? How do you come up with that? I'd say, well, there's a million ham radio operators. And computers are bigger than ham radio. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Which is a little more obvious than anything, but it's not business school talk. So we finally got vectored onto this angel, Mike Markla. And about the same time, Ron Wayne, who had 10% of Apple, um, sold out. And here's why uh, Steve had called me up for the $50,000 order for complete Apple One computers. We were going to build 100 computers for $500 each. Pricing them we said, well, let's add a third that comes to six sixty seven I said six sixty six sixty six I have a long history of repeating digits in my in phone numbers and the like, and um, so that's what we priced it at. Well, we had to buy we, we couldn't afford parts, so the parts would come out of a closet on a certain day, and we had thirty days to pay for them thirty days net credit. The parts would get inserted in the computers we'd eventually drive down to Santa Clara where they were made then drive them home and in the garage we set up one bench. Steve ran the business from his bedroom. He would call stores, he would call magazines, he would call parts suppliers, he would get everything done from his telephone. We didn't even have a telephone in the garage. We didn't really do any designing in the garage, we didn't do any business in the garage, but we'd bring the computers to the garage, hook them up and see if they worked and then put the good ones in a box, and fix the bad ones, and put them in boxes, and put them in boxes. Then Steve would drive them down to the one computer store in the area, the bike Shop, and sell them and get paid cash. And we we had 30 days credit on the parts, and we had no lawyers, so we could cycle them in 10 days, get paid cash, and that's how we paid for the operation. Well, Ron Wayne, who had 10% of Apple, realized that if we ever didn't get paid, Steve Jobs had no money, and I had no money. And they'd come to him and they'd get his gold from under his mattresses or whatever. And so he sold out for a few hundred dollars, his 10% of Apple, the partnership. I <laughs> <laughs> introduced his angel Mark Markla for the Apple II. And he started realizing that, you know, that was the hot product, that this was going to be a real big major market. The first analysts were just ready to start predicting that this market was going to be like a billion-dollar market. And he was talking about how in five years would be a $500 million company. And I thought, well, people who've been successful just talk big numbers. You know, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. I mean, one million would impress me. And um, so Mike Markla was willing to fund us. And it finally came down to he put in his $250,000. And he structured it. He said, "Well, the work I'd done was worth about eighty thousand dollars, and Steve Jobs was worth as much as me, and that's eighty thousand. So eighty thousand of his money would be for an equal share in the company, and the rest of his money would be a loan." And at least he had a reasoning, and he explained it openly and honestly. So he said that I had to leave Hewlett-Packard, and I said, "Huh? Why do I have to leave Hewlett-Packard? I've designed two computers in a year." and cassette tape interfaces, and I wrote a basic, and I did all these peripherals, and demo software of all types, and I wrote articles in magazines and everything, and I did it all moonlighting. Why don't I just keep moonlighting and keep my job for life, my secure job with Hewlett-Packard, so I'll be an engineer forever. And he said, well, no, you've got to leave Hewlett-Packard. And he says, decide by Tuesday. So on Tuesday, I went down to his combina with Mike and Steve Jobs, and I said, no. I said, I went inside myself, and what I want to be is an engineer for life, and I love designing computers and writing software, but I can do that on my own time. I can do it after work anytime I feel like it. Nothing stops me from designing computers, so I'm so I'm happy. And that was really the truth. And Steve Jobs went into a bit of a frenzy and got all my relatives and friends to start badgering me. You've got to take this money. It's a lot of money well, that's coming in, you know. This is your big chance. And finally, one friend called up, Alan Baum again, and he said, Steve, you can be an engineer, become a manager, and get rich. Or you can be an engineer and stay an engineer and get rich. And it was when he said you could stay an engineer that it was okay. That was what shook me. I needed one other person saying that. Because I was afraid start a company. I can never be political. I can never push people around. I can never fire them. I can never tell them what they're doing is bad. I was just too soft of a person. So if I was running a company, I would be pushed out right away but now he said you could be an engineer forever well yes so um, that day I left Hewlett Packard and we started Apple and I was going to be an engineer at Apple and nothing else never rise on the org chart didn't want to I haven't risen on the org chart to this day um, just didn't want to you know, get into a lot of those political aspects of a company <coughs> now that we were in business with the Apple II heading for business we had decided Steve wanted to build the first plastic case ever for a computer it had never been done And to build a plastic case, heat tends to stay inside. And my power supply would be a little hot. So we got a better power supply designer from Atari, Rod Holt. And we hired him, and he designed what's called a switching power supply. runs very cool, high efficiency, and um, that way we didn't need a fan. It's funny, because that first product, Steve had a reason to avoid the fan, and he stuck with this philosophy of no computer should have a fan. I mean, nowadays, every computer needs a fan, but... Um, he really fought it in Apple for a long time. <coughs> it's um, you know A lot of things that you do early in life, you kind of stick to those same methods. For example, when I first met Steve, back at the high school, he would sit there and do claymation videos. You know, take a picture of the clay, move the clay a little, take another picture and it looks like these animals moving around or whatever. Well, what's he doing now, Pixar. <laughs> <laughs> so much that story of little early dreams, you know, that really come to place later on in life. Well, we, um, we finished up the Apple II. I had to finish up some code and test it and make sure it was exactly right for shipping with the Apple II. It was the first product ever to use the new 2K-byte e-ROMs that were coming out from Cynertech and AMIs, and AMIs didn't come out in time, so we used Cynertech. the first time in the world four of those ROMs made 8K-bytes of software, so when you turned on the computer, it went beep, and you were running a program, a computer language. I mean, there was no booting up time, reading in tapes or anything. We did not have a disk drive. We didn't have a floppy disk. We didn't have a hard disk. We had your own cassette tape. You'd buy you buy a program on cassette tape, push a button, and type something on the on the, the keyboard, and the tape would read in for a minute, and it would go beep, and now your program's in memory and it, you could run it. So uh the started out that when we came out with the Apple II computer, a bunch of people started writing programs, mostly games at first. They started playing with, with um, little games that used my, my low res graphics, and then they started coming up with some high res graphics where rocket ships, you could have a lunar lander, and eventually we built a game at Apple where you could actually shoot down and shoot ships that were flying over. That level of game, I was seeing it for the first time being written on microprocessors, being written in, as software. One stage before we built the Apple II, I had this idea, my he said. I said, could I possibly write a game in BASIC? Any fifth grader can program in BASIC. Any simple kid can learn to program in BASIC. What if you could write a game that's animated with things moving? Why don't I try Breakout, the one I designed for Atari? I sat down, and I put the commands into my BASIC. I put the hardware into the computer, and I wrote in about half an hour, I tried hundreds of variations that would have taken me my entire lifetime in hardware to move the score around, to change where it is, to change the ball speeds, to change the paddle size. All these things would have taken me the rest of my life in hardware. So I called Steve over to my, my apartment, I sat him down on the floor, and I showed him how I could sh- retype in a little bit of the program and change the color on the TV of the bricks. And I was just shaking, just shaking. I said, now that games are software, the world's never gonna be the same. It was so neat to get to see you know, the start of these kind of changes that were gonna come to, um, products that, that are made for people. The Apple II, we introduced it very successfully compared to every other computer in the world. It was the only one that, at an affordable price, you could pull something out of a box, plug it in the wall like a hi-fi, and use it. And it really worked, and it ran right out of the box. So we started, we had a lot of dealer agreements, stores were coming into all the cities of the country, one by one by one, and they all had empty space. We didn't have to fight them for having Previous agreements with other distributors of other computers, there were none. So it was all wide open. So we had some of the best dealer agreements that were in the business. Mike Markla ran our marketing. (coughs) For the first couple of years, five of us ran Apple as the staff. Myself, who'd done all the critical engineering. Rod Holt was our analog engineer that designed the power supply. Mike Markla, who'd put the money in, came in and did our marketing. Steve Jobs kind of did everything there was. His job was really to learn how to be an executive and run everything in the company. And any, any weakness anywhere, he would um, make sure that the right things got done to, um, to get the parts that were needed or to get you know the, the press attention or whatever. He was sort of a high motivation to make this company a big deal. And we had a president we hired, Mike Scott. And Mike Scott... Um, really loved this new computer, and he came from the technology business world. He was our president until we went public. Very, very important um, public offering. Apple's was, but you never hear about it. But he was so important to us. He made sure that everything that needed got done. He, you know, he stomped on people. He ran the operations, set things up. You're really, um, I think of all the people who started Apple, I admire him the most. Well, Mike and I worked on the manual for the Apple II, and I thought, you know. Well, back at the Homebrew Computer Club, I wanted to give away computers because it was something good for the world. I thought, how did I learn about computers? I learned from the times companies sent me listings and schematics, and I could look at them and study what they had done. So I worked with Mike, we got into our manual the complete schematics with descriptions of how they work, complete code listings, commented everything that had been written just about. So somebody could look at this and see this is how computers are built down to the very first chips. This is how you actually write code to make a card of your own to plug in. And they learned all that from us and I really wanted it to be an educational tool. And to this day, I'm very proud that that worked because people come to me all over in my travels. People that are CEOs of companies, oh, the Apple II was the first product I could really learn how they worked. Well, the Apple II um, started selling very well, but we only had a cassette tape. We didn't even have a disc drive yet. And the sales were going up. You know, and if you sell a thousand and a couple thousand dollars each, that's a lot of money. (coughs) By, after about one year, some of the top needs in our company. We had written some software to try to get this computer accepted by people in the homes. It's a lot easier to design a computer that can go into a home that's fanciful, that has color, that's easy to use. It's a lot easier to do that than to convince people it's needed. Thank God the press was on our side. All over the world, tremendous good articles about computers were the coming thing, these small computers were going to change life and change the world. Apple had to go out and market and show pictures and brochures and talk as though their computer could do useful things for you, like balance your checkbook, like teach your children. And we had, we supplied cassette tapes with our computer that you would load in. It would run a flashcard program for kids, or it would run a checkbook program. Now, the checkbook program, you'd read the tape in, the program in for a minute, beep. Then you'd have to read your checkbook data in for a minute, beep. Then you'd have to change, you know, change your checkbook and reconcile it on the screen, and then you could write it out for a minute, beep, it was too long, it was too much of a bother. So, one of the staff meetings, Mike Markla put up on the wall, the number one thing we needed was a floppy disk, so it would, we could run programs fast. Number two, we needed a floating point basic. <coughs> now, the, um, the floating point basic was because we had done a checkbook program, and it didn't have decimal points in the basic I wrote, well, Microsoft came along. I was working on a floating point basic, and Microsoft came along and said, Here's one for the 6502 microprocessor. You know, who knows if they wrote it themselves or where they got it, but tried it out. I got them some, some of the heated color commands and graphics commands. And I said, Yeah, let's just skip that. Then we can move on to other things. We don't have to do it. And it was unfortunate because we had something like a five year license. By the time it ran out, Our Apple II computers were all of the mainstream income of the company for ages and ages, even past the Macintosh introduction. Huge amounts of money were pouring into the company forever. This was the first computer that was going to sell a million computers even, and it actually took IBM about three years, two to three years, to even pass this up once they entered the market. Well, eventually the license for that basic expired and we had to go back to Microsoft, and they sort of had us over the canister. We needed their BASIC, and I forget what we licensed to them, something really important. I think it was like the GUI for the Macintosh. So, um, <laughs> I think that's what everything is. <laughs> It cost us, I know it cost us really, really a major way, so I've always regretted that I didn't write Floating Point BASIC the first time, but I was trying to get done first and have the first BASIC ever, you know? Um, so, anyway, the floppy disk came up. <laughs> And the, 1978, the first year, I think that was the year, the first year ever that in January they were going to allow, or it was January 1979, s- personal computers, the, there were three of us, the Apple, a Commodore, and a Radio Shack. They all came out around the same time, the Apple was first. They were going to allow us into the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, Nevada. Okay, I had never been to Las Vegas, Nevada, you know, I've always heard about the lights. And so I said, I said, if we get a floppy disk done, can, can, you know, can we show it? And Mike Markler said, yeah, I didn't want to say, I want to go to Las Vegas. They would have let me go anyway, of course. But it was going to be marketing only in Las Vegas. And I said, what if we get a floppy disk done? It was two weeks away. You don't design a floppy disk you know, controller and all in two weeks. But um, I thought, wow, this will be my sneak way. I'll get to go to Las Vegas. <laughs> company expense. So uh, Mike Markler said, yeah. I went in every single day over Christmas vacation, including Christmas, including New Year's, and a young programmer just out of high school, Randy Wigginton, came in with me and helped work on some of the code and worked out these weird ideas that I'd had based on a new chip before I left Hewlett Packard of maybe converting the data that comes off of a floppy disk. It's like off of a cassette tape. It's just on one wire, one little signal that's going up and down, converted into data in 8 bits to the 8-bit microprocessor, 8 bits at a time. And it was a, it's a weird, weird way they store things on floppy disks. So I came up with another one of those little state machines in here, two, two chips to do a job of almost a small microprocessor. By the time I was done, five chips got it reading data, writing data onto the floppy disk and reading it back correctly. And, boy, I didn't even know if I'd be able to do it. I was really scared when I read it back. How do you tell where the start of the data is? What if you chunk right into the middle of some bit and byte? How do you know where the byte's starting in? I even came up with a solution for that, and I'd never once in my life been near a floppy disk controller ever before. And it was fortunate, because when you're never near it, you sit down and you design the optimal product with what you have, which is I had a microprocessor that could do some calculations and and interact in the timing, and I had my knowledge of chips and how to build them. So I built this thing in five chips, and I said, well, how come our competitors have 30 to 50 chips? I must not have done something that floppy disk controllers need. So I took a competitor's circuit and I reverse engineered it, studied it, and I found out in the end mine did more. So I knew I was on to another big winner like the Apple II. And we took the floppy disk to Las Vegas, We'd be walking down, uh, down the street, 17 year old Randy Wigginton. I, I taught him how to play craps. He won some money.
0: <laughs>
2: and uh, this was fun. I remember teaching Steve Jobs how to play craps there. I'd been to Reno. So. We, we uh, The first night before the show, I sat down finishing up the little bits of code that would give us a floppy disk where we could say, run, checkbook, or run, color math, and the programs would come in and run. And I got it finally working about 6 in the morning, and I said, better back it up. I had two floppies only. Better back it up. So I'd stick one floppy in, type in some commands to read track 0, stick the other floppy in, type the commands to write track zero, back and forth, read, write, read, write 34 tracks of data and when I was all done, I looked at the two floppies and I sort of realized that I'd copied the bad one onto the good one (laughs) 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 but we did, we did manage to show the floppy disk and it was a huge hit about the same time a program outside of Apple got written the first spreadsheet program, the first Excel-like program ever, it was called VisiCalc, and with VisiCalc A small businessman could put a table of numbers on a screen and go by and modify them month by month by month. Make small modifications to how his business was going to run and see the end results. And in half a day, a small businessman could get more work done than in a lifetime of doing it with pencil and paper. All of a sudden, this program, the floppy disk came out. (coughs) We had the computer, the floppy disk to make things fast. VisiCal came out. And all of a sudden, our sales expanded 10 times. Everybody was going to every computer store, and they wanted to buy the Apple hardware and the VisiCalc software. The Apple hardware and the VisiCalc software. Together, they made the solution that the businessman wanted, a way to evaluate how his business was going to do and what what choices to make. All of a sudden, we thought this market wasn't going to be so much homes and games as it was going to be a business-directed market. So we started taking some turns around them. We said... "Um, why don't we after another year these businessmen were always buying an Apple II usually an extra card of memory for more bigger <coughs> spreadsheets and an extra card that would let them have wider screen, more characters on a screen because they could see more months on their spreadsheets so we said why don't we build this product and we'll call it the Apple III so we started the Apple III project inside of Apple to be our business machine around the same time IBM announced they were going to come into the market they had their first little machine and Intel processor-based machine. (coughs) This was around 1980. With the Apple III, what we did was we built in the extra columns of display, 80 columns instead of 40, more characters across, so you could see more months on a spreadsheet. We built in the extra memory, and you could... We realize there's a ton of Apple II software in the world. There's thousands and thousands of programs that people like for the Apple II. There are database programs, there are dialing programs, there are, there are tons of games, all this great stuff. <coughs> word processors. Matter of fact, the first word processor for the Apple II came about when before our sales went sky-high with VisiCalc and the floppy disk. Just before that, an old friend of mine, Captain Crunch, was in prison. and And I'm a sucker when somebody's crying and his printer had broken or been stolen or something I said look I'm about to buy a letter quality printer I'll loan it to you you'll have it to use one of these first new better printers that looked like typewriters cost thousands of dollars and I got it for him and he wrote a word processor while he was in prison it was (laughs) was C writer So when he came out of prison, two sales, sales shot sky high, and he had the only decent word processor. So he made about a million bucks on that deal. <laughs> and he also got the deal to be IBM's first word processor. Easywriter. So that's a bit of history. <coughs> Things happen accidentally. <coughs> a lot of times. Okay, so... Um, so we got this Apple 3, but we built it in two modes. It was built very much like an Apple II, but you could flip a switch and boot it up as either an Apple II, or flip the switch the other way, and it would boot up as a totally different machine, an Apple 3. It would run a different operating system off of a different floppy disk. Um, so it was two machines in one, and we actually put chips in to disable the Apple II features. So, we actually took away features that people wanted on the Apple II. If you booted it up as an Apple II, it didn't have the widescreen, and if you booted it up as an Apple II, it didn't have the extra memory. Because we wanted people to get familiar with the Apple III is for the big jobs and the Apple II is just for games and home hobby type stuff. So I think that was a big mistake. But it was marketing. We decided When we started, Mike Markler said, we're going to be a marketing-driven company, kind of the opposite of Hewlett-Packard, which is an engineering-driven company back then. Um, shortly after the Apple III, the Apple III never took off. Never took off. For three years, 1980 to 1983, <coughs> got to where Apple forced everyone in the company to have an Apple III on their desk. All the Apple II projects were canceled. Only, the only projects in the company were for the Apple III, but it never sold. The Apple II was just pouring in tons of money continually, but there were hardly any projects in the company. You'd go to the outside world, and you'd talk to the users, and the users were, oh, Apple II this, we got this new great thing. They were coming out from thousands of companies that had started making accessories, like the thousands of companies that make accessories for iPods now. It looked like a big world out there. You come back to Apple, and all that anybody ever knew about was the Apple III. It was like they weren't even in harmony with the rest of the world. They didn't understand it. so, um anyway, Jeff Raskin was a very important person. He came from the academic world. He had actually taught classical piano and the like. A lot of very good musicians turn out to be some of our best um <coughs> programmers. As a matter of fact, another one was bill Atkinson <coughs> Bill Atkinson at apple um it was one of these great programmers that every line of code had to have a reason and why it was better than any other way you could have done this particular solution, and he came to me one night and he said that um, that Apple had turned down. UC San Diego's Pascal system which was a Pascal system that was universal with a little P machine, kind of like a J machine like Java but it was a P machine that you could write it for several different processors an Intel processor, a Motorola processor our own 6502 and once you had that little kernel written every every bit of their code would run identically on each of the machines so programs could be written that would apply to various different platforms (coughs) well Bill came to me and he said that well, our engineering people had decided to turn it down. But he said, it's great. We could bring back one and show them it working. So he and I hopped on a plane that night down to San Diego, we spent the entire night up with a few of the kids hanging around the computer lab and they were working on the kernel and we were adding I was adding the floppy disk routines and Bill was adding some graphics routines. We flew back to Apple with a floppy disk and we could finally demonstrate it at apple and Apple changed its mind and went with this code. It turned out to be important for so many years, so many programs got written using that Pascal system. Um, God I even used it when I came back to college here. <coughs> So Bill was one of those artists in the company, but his friend Jeff Raskin had come about when Steve and I were thinking about starting Apple, Jeff came to the garage and he told us that you can build a computer, you have a certain amount of power in the processor, and that an expert, a computer expert can always use it and get what they need done, but if you do the, a little bit of extra work, you can make it so that a novitiate, somebody who has never even used a computer, can walk up and figure out how to do things very quickly and easily, and that the best computers have the shortest manuals. So Jeff was the biggest influence on us thinking that way, and I thought, this guy is so bright. That is just exactly what we should be about, you know, making things that, that a young person, a young fifth grader can use, you know, as well as an expert. Well, Jeff suggested that we go down and visit a place he had worked and visited Park Research Center in Palo Alto, where they had the GUI on display. This is 19. (coughs) I'm trying to get it right. Probably about 1970, 1980. 1980, we went down there. And as soon as you saw the windows come up, now Douglas Engelbart had written a paper in 1963 Augmenting Human Intelligence. How do we make machines that can really solve the big problems of our time? And that was his goal. And he had written it way back in 1963. He had conceived of the mouse, of video screens that were on. Nobody could imagine they'd ever be affordable back then. Of windows, of menus, of the whole system, even hyperlinks. Um, It's hard to believe what what he did, but here it was in in real practice in Park Center. And Steve would sit down with them. And once you saw this thing, like one window comes up, and another window comes up, another window comes up. My God, it's like you have three computers in one. That's power. I mean, I said, once you have have that machine, you'll never go back to what you had before. It's a one-way door. Steve sat down and said, look, we were good at taking computers that used to be expensive and making them affordable to people. We think this technology, Xerox doesn't know how to make it affordable, but Apple could for the masses. And we got into some working agreement with them, and and sold them some stock, and so, some of their people left to help join Apple, and our first project was called the Lisa Computer, but to do a GUI computer correctly took about a megabyte of RAM. <coughs> a megabyte of RAM cost 5000 bucks back then, our computer sold for 10000 so it didn't sell very much. Steve Jobs got kicked off the program and wanted to outdo them, so he said, let's build, let's build a computer. That uses a lot less RAM, use Steve Wozniak type techniques to reduce the amount of memory needed and the amount of chips and everything and get the cost down to where we can make the thing affordable. And I was on the project, the Macintosh project. So were all my best friends in Apple. And my best friends in the world are never the higher-ups and never the CEOs in life. They're always usually the interesting people that do weird, interesting things, that have a lot of ideas, that want to do things for other reasons than just money, especially. And here were these groups of people. One of them, Burl Smith, had never even gone to college, and he had become as good a hardware designer as I was. He just wanted to be like Steve Wozniak, and he was the designer of the Macintosh. And Andy Hertzfeld, who was came uh, um, from Berkeley here, would write the tightest, cutest little code to do anything in the world you could think of. Bill Atkinson did the graphics. Nobody knew, till um, during all of his time at Apple, that Bill Atkinson, who did the graphics for the Lisa, the graphics for the Macintosh. Both those computers were black and white computers, and so he did HyperCard for Apple, and it was a black and white program. He was colorblind, but none of us knew it at Apple.
3: Hertzfeld <laughs> <laughs> went to Brown. I found
2: out later. So anyway, uh, this was the Macintosh team. And it was all my favorite people. Jeff Raskin was heading it up. But then um, I had a plane crash. Taking off from in a plane, I had a crash. And five weeks later, I came out of a type of amnesia. And the first thing I thought, as soon as I came out of that amnesia, I just phoned Steve Jobs and said, um, or I phoned somebody, I think probably Steve Jobs, and I said, um, I'm going to go back and get my degree. Because I just realized I'll never get a college degree if I don't do it now. You know, And, and it would meant something to say I got a Berkeley degree. So I took the next year off and um, went to went to college, put on some big music festivals, um, and you know I don't know if any of you ever heard of the US festivals, big big huge music music festivals. We had a million people in San Bernardino, California, over three days. Could have put on another one, <clears throat> September
0: 2007.
2: <laughs> Just like the first ones, be true to the the ideas of its all about, you know, goodness and education. We're going to have education shows in tents. We're going to have a lot of uh, computer exhibits in tents. Do it just like we did the first shows. But uh, then I <coughs> headed back to Apple. And I got into Apple and discovered, well, the place was all Apple 3s. But the world was Apple 2s. But the day I got there, John Sculley joined us as a new CEO. <coughs> Interesting story around this time. Former Governor um, Brown of the of California, yeah, I think it's Edmund Brown, <coughs> was called Moonbeam Brown. A little weirdness thinking. It's Jerry. Jerry. Jerry Brown. Jerry Brown. Sorry. So Jerry Brown came and he um, visited the campus, and Steve Jobs asked a friend of mine to show him around. And so as he was being shown around, he was shown the Lisa project. He didn't really get any of this stuff. So He was being shown around everywhere. this friend of mine took him. Apple employees were looking with a look of shock, you know, and later they came up to him, don't tell me that. He says, yeah, it's Jerry Brown. And they said, oh, no. You know, That it turns out that was the day they were going to announce the new CEO. <laughs> Just by coincidence, some people were afraid of Jerry Brown. <laughs> 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 resumes were flying. <clears throat> well, John Scully joined us. our CEO first thing he did, had a big meeting, and (coughs) realized the Apple III wasn't selling, that we were going to put the Apple III into a percentage of the company relative to its its revenues, and reorganize things, and bring back a lot of Apple II projects, and I got involved again as an engineer, and eventually we came out with the Apple II um, GS product, which had graphics and sounds, and took the Apple II a bit further. Um, I'm going to stop at this point, and I think better, we're going to get a lot more out of question and answer period. So, all right, so let's
1: take some minutes <clears> and, uh, and we'll go
0: from
3: there. Thank you very
2: much. I'm going to break or something, all right? <coughs> <coughs> my throat, My throat is barely making it. Hey, David. I'll make- You're kidding <laughs> Really? All right. (laughs) He's very good,
0: though.
2: Why did we meet there? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, no. Were you getting one? Yeah. Oh, all right. I I (laughs) wouldn't. The list is so long now. What'd you get yours for? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the 360. Oh, yes, yes, yes. This
3: is awesome. Yeah. Show way back.
2: So go. I'm well, good. Uh, got into the aspects of the architecture. I love that computer. You really program the one to be relocated anywhere else and still ran. So every address was loaded to a base oh, restaurant. And yeah, when well, we came out with the system, <laughs> we opened a Macintosh. I was so disappointed that our programmers didn't program that way. We saved a little bit of cycles. Oh, God, they, they programmed with the addresses. And, oh, it was just so beautiful. And, oh, right.
0: I, I, was, uh, I was waiting
2: to ask you uh... <laughs> I wish my throat were in better shape. I really do better. Okay. Hey,
3: Patterson.
2: Great. David. Oh, yes. Yeah. Are you the I still am. I played this Sunday and I'm playing next Sunday. Yes. Yep. Yeah, I played. I played a little hard this Sunday, and um, I had one good crash. Really, I love it when you tumble over and over. Well, I know I love to tumble. I love to tumble. We have our helmets on. We're on grass. We're on grass. Yeah, my Segway. Hey, Patterson, dinged up a bit. David, uh, the really, Actually, I rode my Segway. It's Ed. In, I rode my Thanks Segway. I rode my Segway here. I parked on campus and I rode my Segway over to the um, parking lot where I was supposed to meet. Thanks for coming. Thanks
3: for doing that.
2: That's great. Yes, it's a two-wheel. Highs, you stand on a little base and Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yep, one day our group actually did a tour of the Berkeley campus. <coughs> Easy, up and down hills, no problem. Oh, yes. Oh, hi.
0: Oh, great. <laughs>
1: One to expensive. Of
2: course he's not that much into it anymore he's not that interested I was just at the safety convention in Long Beach in Long Beach we just had a convention I was a speaker and he was a speaker all he spoke about was how horrible is one group of trying to save ways to disabled vets how it was so wrong to apply it a medical device and they and for so, only oh, he said it thirty times, and it was such a why do you say such a negative thing thirty times? If those people, yeah, they're going to get in so much trouble, and they're, done, they're just going to have to feel bad if somebody gets hurt on one. How would you feel? And I'm thinking this is the guy, this is the guy that convinced fifty states to not require helmets. And I wear a helmet because I'm sure that the death rate is hundred times that of bicycles per mile because of the helmet. Is Only three states have helmet laws on Segways. I think it's just wrong. Well, yeah, yeah. And this is the guy saying that. Oh, you're going to advise somebody to get a Segway and they're going to find they're going to you know get hurt by it. No. Yeah, and, and there were so, there were a bunch of disabled vets that said how much it helped hey, Steve? get around.
0: Yeah.
3: Get Waz to walk in front of the camera for a sec.
2: Hey Waz, Julie's here Hi Steve uh, Hi, wherever you are you're, Oh, there you are you uh, uh, That's my goddaughter
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to see your throat's doing okay
2: Oh, my throat's not doing perfectly though
0: She's drinking lots of tea
2: If you were here, you could tell better
0: Yeah, probably well, I just wanted to say hi
2: Made it. Okay. Good <laughs> to see you. Thanks for doing this,
3: Wise. We really appreciate it.
2: Cool. That was Ed. Hello, <laughs> Randy. Huh? That was hella random. Yes, 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 yes. And who's it to?
0: To Who's <laughs> Carla? Yeah, because it's Thank you. It's fun. I mean, right. <laughs> Check uh, my email, both my work email and my. I've your
1: bathroom No? Just
2: tea. <laughs> yeah, but tea helps a lot.
0: <laughs> mm. <laughs>
2: Uh, oh, where's the camera? The camera... oh, it's automatically. Oh, oh, I thought the camera was pointed here, so I had to stand here.
1: It's better that way,
3: actually.
2: It's like there's a whole bunch of cameras here.
3: Oh, hi. Here's a
2: Berkley. It's at Berkeley right now, right? Yes.
0: Okay. <laughs>
2: oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I had to. Well, actually, actually, I had a deal with my parents where they said that um, <coughs> Colorado was so expensive that they would give me one year at Colorado, one at De Anza. And actually, I chose De Anza for my first year because they'd throw in a car. It was that much of a difference. They'd throw in a car, but then I signed up for classes and I couldn't get chemistry, calculus, or physics. And when you're top student in math and science, and you don't get those three yeah. it's like your life is shattered, but I had paid the fees for the dorm, um, the dorm hold, and the, the tuition hold that you give to Colorado, so even though I had started classes, I got on a plane and flew out late, but I chose that for my first year, so really it was the end, so it was my second year anyway, and then I had to work to earn the money for my third year too, and then, actually when I left here, I was told to one year off to work to earn the money for my fourth year, but I got this great a great job at Eula Pack and it led to Apple, and so I never got back. I never got back for 10 years, but I really intended to, yeah. Um, believe it or not, we haven't mounted it. this. It's been fried in yes. No, 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 no. Oh, yes. And we looked at the original site, and we had problems with um, the people who control it now. And we looked at an Indian casino you know, down south, and the Indians weren't into it financially for all their improvements, pretty much. So, yeah, off the field,
0: probably. Yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 So, that, was, that was such a huge, huge undertaking.
1: Twice,
2: twice. Twice. 82 and 83. Well, I also had my first child. It was the first day of, of the first concert. So, that was so. here I am opening it with less than a day-old kid, my <laughs> so, That was tiring. I mean, it means, yeah. yeah. Right now you, yeah, you have a new kid, you should know yeah. I mean, it was scary. It's frightening. The day, the, one one of the days I had a house up on a hill yeah. looking beside the, the one house on a hill. And I got up and looked out the window and I saw that many people and I just, said, that's just, oh my, like, yeah. scary. It's scary. It was scary. But, well, by then I was less of like, i I'm only an introvert around, like, real need yeah. for situations yeah. or people. Or I wouldn't, I wouldn't even know how to talk in a bar. I don't know. I don't know all that small talk. No, they oh they just walk up anywhere and they know what to say. I don't yeah. so um. know
0: okay.
2: No, no, they were both. Yeah, yeah. It was at a county they park San Bernardino. <coughs> <coughs> and we had spent a huge amount of money to make an amphitheater for a half a million people. Yeah. yeah. Today they, the they have an the amphitheater that's now for 65000 They moved the stage forward a lot and they built seats. That's why now it's per Channel. After to do They do about six shows a year there. They, they still Ed? There. Yeah. We built here
1: what's your, talk, what's your clock say? What? Okay. My clock says quarter to nine,
3: and I have to leave for a plane in uh, 35 minutes, oh, so let's go. All right. So we should Good. start
2: thinking about getting back with... The yeah, I've got a son who's... Um, problem, problem seems to be on your end. What's he called that? <laughs> Another. Um, he, was, he was really great at snowboarding. He won a lot of contests, but uh, let's... i got my, my older son, Ray, graduated. And, uh, and son, and he's actually working for NASA on the Hubble. Thank God, you know, thank God they saved it today. Yes, they are going to do the rescue mission. It's political. Right, right in the government, they'll decide whether or not to allocate the money for this or that. And you're always on your toes which way is it going to go. There's
0: what? What, that one to go?
2: Okay. don't for a no Yeah, well, mechanical is a good place to be. I think... Right now, you
0: know, I guess
2: like what? Oh, okay. Well, robotics, I think this is going to be the coming. Somebody's going to do the after two of robotics. <laughs> <laughs>
0: really it's good that
2: involves the software, some electronics, and hardware. It's going to be a great coming field. Psychology always interested me after my plane crash and my memory problem. So when I came back there, I almost didn't graduate because I didn't take engineering course for majors. For majors. For majors. Psych. You ever had statistics? Oh, okay. I'm an expert.
4: Oh,
2: this should be okay. I want a refill. I want a refill. Well, I helped.
4: I helped. I helped
2: make some Oh yeah, yeah. Nixie tubes. So when I turn my wrist, for hours. Yeah. That's all you want. Hours. Hold on. Hours.
0: Minutes.
2: (laughs) Oh! um, When I turn my wrist, it'll show hours, minutes. They light up. Hours. (laughs) (laughs) Hours. Minutes. You can even program the end of it. Okay, let's sit
1: down. <laughs> w? I don't
0: Everybody
1: ready? We are. We so what I'd like to do for the uh, rest of the class is talk a little bit about uh, the things that link up with themes that we've had in this class earlier, um, and that'll be the instructor's uh, taking their privilege here with with. Uh, uh, Mr. Wozniak, and then uh, we're going to have uh, questions from the people who have become experts in the course, who, who prepared to ask questions tonight. We'll have general course questions, and then we'll have questions from the floor. So it's a it's a packed thing, but I will talk fast, and and, and hopefully that'll help. Um, one of the themes that we've been dealing with in the course, which I think has been very interesting, is if you look at the innovators from really the deep history of the subject, people like Pascal and Burroughs, um, they were unique because they were steeped in this technical environment that only a few people alive at that time were, were exposed to, but they also had this poignant knowledge of human need. So there were only a few people on the planet who were miserable because they had to fill out tax returns who did banking chores, and these people actually ruined their health. And people like Pascal came from a place where they knew both of those people. They knew not only the opportunity but the need. And I'm wondering if, you know, there's a parallel that you came from this world at Sunnyvale, which knew about the technology tremendously, and then you go through a phase where you you go to different communities, like the, the hippie community and and you reinvent this different side of things. Can you kind of trace how the need and the, and the technology came together in, in your head?
2: To tell you the truth, I think that when I discovered <coughs> that I could have that computer in my life, I was going to have it, no matter what. I didn't really think it was... Um, I was I, the Homebrew Computer Club was rare because it made it more important. made it important to do it now, to do it quick. It brought some facts to my attention, some parts that existed but actually the goodness that we were doing for the world, that we were really going to all of a sudden make people more into masters than slaves. If you were a programmer at work, you might be a really low-level, tripe person. You'd write a program on paper and go to a little window and pass your program in. Some, somebody would type it on a key punch and hand you back some cards. You'd take them to a window and hand it in, and eventually you'd get printout out from the computer. And It was like you never saw the computer. It wasn't you. It was owned by the other party, and that made them more important. And you were less the master and more the slave. So we had this great little Windows. I mean, the Apple II really get, allowed so many people to become masters. They would take their own computers into work and say, "I've got a computer. I can run these little calculations with Visicalc and get the answers before the company computer can easily." You know, and it was really working for there. And also, when the Macintosh was introduced. A little bit of a window of more of the humanization coming to computers, where the human was more important than the technology, and the technology would bend to the human way of doing things, rather than forcing the human to bend to the way the technology was.
1: So you talk in the book about engineering companies and marketing companies, and and how those two have to get to, together ultimately, because mm-hmm. you know, you would visit you ended up having ten times more than you thought you would. Um, if you were Well, well actually, Hewlett-Packard was
2: an engineering-driven company, Mm -hmm. but who were the customers? The customers were engineers. Mm -hmm. Who was designing the Mm -hmm. products? Engineers. So they kind of understood the needs of the customers um, in a lot of cases very well.
1: So when you generalize beyond that, though, when you are at Apple, um, what were the things they did right and did wrong to notice these opportunities that neither of you knew going in? Nobody knows they want to have a fully assembled computer. Somebody tells them. Nobody knows that there's this VisiCalc thing, which is going to multiply your market 10 times, what are the things that this, the company was good at listening to, to match up those opportunities?
2: Boy, it's tough to say. I mean, we had the perfect marketing for the Apple II. Since it all came out of me, it was just one person. You can, <laughs> whatever. It's going to do my jobs. I had two votes. This program, it has to be able to program my work at Hewlett Packard, mm-hmm. so I don't have to wait for the company computer. I can do it right at my desk easier, better, faster, and it's got to play games. That was, those were the only goals. When we started the company, we had a few goals that, yes, we convinced people it would let you do your checkbook or keep your recipes. Therefore it belongs in the home and actually it didn't come to do a very good job of either of those at first. It was a long, long time. But we start, it gave us the motivation to start getting the message out there and get known and people started buying it thinking, yes, I'll try this out, the experimenters, I'll try and see how it affects my real home life and improves it. And then we, we just watched the market when the market spun off in one direction in business or they started buying a certain kind of program. Uh, we get to work and enhance that area. Yeah, And it was really easy because we were the, we were the market leaders.
1: So you start off in this, in this world where you, you basically want the company to make at least one copy so you can own it. And you end up in this place where you're being driven by you know, traditional patent incentives and, and, and all that rigmarole, which coming in, it doesn't sound like you were particularly paying attention to.
2: Well, well, actually, uh, yeah. there was yeah, there was a switch over in some of that regard. Thinking about it as a product for a company, and not just a giveaway. I gave away the Apple One, but with the Apple 2, we really were cautious. We only showed little bits of it. I think the, the one of the main times I remember taking it down to the homebrew computer club was to show off my game Breakout, all programmed in BASIC. But I had a special key I could type that would make the paddle jiggle a bit, but never miss the ball. So I let one of my friends, actually it was Captain Crunch, play it. And he thought he was able to play this game and never miss. And everybody clapped when he won it. <laughs> but it was it was really built in. But I we didn't really pass out schematics. We didn't pass out listings. And we got early on when Mike Markle invested, we got an agency to help come up with a logo and discuss the name. They tried to talk us out of Apple. And we said, no, computers for people are going to have to have that... That selling it to people, they've got to think it's something healthy and friendly and non-threatening, not the computer terms of the day. And uh, we also got, um, let's see, uh, lawyers that uh, basically told us where to put the copyright notices. So I was
1: one of the lawyers who who fought over the copyright notices after they were put on the chip. And and one of the questions, the last question I want to ask tonight is, you mentioned in the book that there was a company called Franklin which made what you call clone today, I suppose, uh, chip
2: for chip. I was shocked. Chip for chips were the same. They were in the same position. They had the same PC board. All they did was take pictures and Xerox it. And I thought, engineers are supposed to are taught all these techniques to design things. How could somebody just go out and copy? How could any engineer have that mentality? I thought engineers were the finest people in the world because they designed new things. They learned all the mathematics to do it. How could they apply their learning to just copying? I was shocked. I was at a trade show once, and the press was gathering around, I was arguing with the president of the company, and I said, I'm your chief engineer. So he finally, he finally said, okay, you're our chief engineer. So I walked away happy. But, you know, I should have, I should have asked for my paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right, Burke is not going to do a better note than that, so I'm going to hand it over to Ed. Ed, what do you
3: have to ask? So, a couple quick questions. Uh, one was is talk about uh, Visicalc and the Apple II. There were presumably by the time Visicalc came along a number of uh, PCs, microprocessor-based systems on which Visicalc could have run, but it took off on the Apple II. Why was that?
2: Well, there were only three personal computers out <coughs> from the get-go. The Apple II, with its color and graphics and high resolution, and and a huge amounts of memory on the board and slots that you could plug new devices like floppy disk drives in. Then there was the Commodore and the Radio Shack. The Radio Shack and Commodore, you couldn't even expand the amount of memory. If you bought it with 4K bytes of memory, you were stuck with 4K bytes forever. The Apple II, you could go up to 48K bytes on the main board and add more into the slots. VisiCalc needed more than 4K bytes of memory. It wouldn't even work with 8K bytes. <coughs> so Visicalc could only be done for the Apple II computer. A floppy disk operating system could only be done for the Apple II computer. Once those two products arrived, the competitors sort of went away. They had to redesign and, you know, come back with a useful product. So really, the expandability of in ways <coughs> that we hadn't really planned was um, the reason that it um, that it really took over the world with that Visicalc product.
3: Got it. So tell me a little bit about the, the profit motive versus shareware in your own mind, right? You know, you in the beginning in the Homebrew Computer Club were giving schematics away. And presumably when you first started producing boards, it was, it was not to make money. It was to make it possible for more people to have your, your, your design. Did it bother you at some point that, uh, that there was a profit motive rather than a, uh, uh, a sort of distributed as widely
2: as possible motive? Um, The fact that there's a profit motive for products and computers doesn't really bother me. (coughs) I chose for a long time to be on the... As much as I wasn't doing for profit, I mean our Hewlett Packard products were for profit. As much as I was doing in the way of computers that I could do for free to help other people get there and help the world, I was willing to do that without profit and didn't really... Um, even really want to turn into profit that much, but once we started Apple and I agreed to, well, yeah, it was the right thing to do because if you make a profit and have a successful product, that just means you're earning money off of something good you did, something good you're bringing to the world, and it's earning you the money really for your company to build another product that's better, and then that one will earn the money to build another product that's better. It's really um, you, you know, you just can't, you, you know, you give it away and you never have the funds to really do a second product very well. <coughs>
3: How many chips were
2: in the Apple II? The Apple II, um, it'd be tough to guess. I think it's probably about 30-some chips plus RAM, maybe 30 chips plus RAM, and RAM would be eight chips for the minimum. Eight chips would amount in an Apple II to either 4K or 16K bytes. Right.
3: So, I was going to just mention a couple things. One was that... uh, Uh, Bill Adkinson and Bud Tribble both have the same story, which is they were UCSD undergrads and then came up to the University of Washington for grad school. And Adkinson lasted, I think, only a couple of weeks before he dropped out and went to Apple. And then he and Steve kept trying to recruit Tribble, and eventually after a year or two, Tribble was in an MD program here, dragged him back down there. But it's funny that these guys went through the path that connected uh, San Diego and Washington.
2: Yeah, and those two were two of the, you know, of all the engineers you work with, only a few you think you would call artists, that every little bit, even of their code, that you can't see has to be that perfect and that well done. Yeah, so we, we were lucky to have both of those two. Yeah,
3: they were both, I think, doing sort of early visualization work at UCSD. They were in physics or something like that down there, and were uh, doing, uh, I, I, I imagine it's sort of pen plotter graphics sorts of stuff, but had a graphics background from that.
2: Yeah, actually, at one point, um, Bill Atkinson had gone down to UCSD, <coughs> where he had heard that there was the only set of slices of a human cortex, right. and he, wanted, he really wanted—to had this idea to digitize all the points, read them into a computer, and then display the things as connections of all the, the paths and folds of the, um, the, not just the cortex, but the entire brain and display them in colors, and he made it sort of an animated movie. He had the thing, he got the, he got the different slides and <clears throat> got all the points, and then he had a computer that he would render. He could only use the computer at nighttime, because it was always used by other people on the campus during the daytime. Only use it at nighttime, and it would render for, for 20 minutes and then take one frame. He, a camera would come up, it would shoot a blue, then it would render the red, that would render the green. One camera would do that. Every once in a while, it hung up so what he had to do was and then he'd wake up in the morning and it had hung up on frame number 507 so what he did was he put a little circuit that he built that was a timer that said if it doesn't take a picture within so many minutes sound an alarm and wake me up and he would sleep there next to the computer and, and he, he created this incredible movie of the human brain and then one of his pictures that came from it was on the cover of Scientific American 1 and he never got a one bit of credit yeah, it was all his, all his idea and work
3: one more comment and then I'll turn it over to Jeff. If I'm not mistaken, the Apple II was introduced in 1977, is that right? And was manufactured until '93, which has got to be the longest lived computer design in production. I mean, obviously it evolved over time, but...
2: Yeah, you know, the Apple II changed very little in most of that time. <coughs> yeah, only the Apple II GS was really even a significant change.
3: Right, so you know, 16 years for what's fundamentally the same machine is absolutely mind-boggling. And right, the Mac was introduced in '84 and probably didn't didn't equal the Apple II's profits until the '90s, sometime, I guess.
2: Um, Yeah, I'm not sure where we knew the Macintosh would eventually be. You know, the majority of it, but in the late '80s, yeah, I was disappointed because all of a sudden the company was almost acting like the Apple II didn't exist, and that was. God, just, it was all of our money pouring in.
3: Well, I think the uh, the design longevity speaks to the quality of the original design. It's completely remarkable that they were selling this thing 16 years after it was originally introduced.
2: Yeah, I don't really care about any credit for... Creating the world of personal computers or creating the company Apple, but I do want credit for having done an incredible job of hooking wires between chips in very unusual ways and people that people that can judge those things look up my schematics and tell me that I want to be known as a good engineer and it, you know that's, that speaks of my academic background
3: yeah let's, uh, let's turn it over to Jeff at San Diego. All right I don't want to take too much time
4: away from everybody else who's here. Um, I just have one question. I was struck by something that you said at the beginning uh, of the evening where, when you were when you were young, everything around you in the world seemed new. Does the world still seem new to you now?
2: Huh, huh. <laughs> I think, well, I mean, we're all born as babies with curiosity, trying to explore and figure out how things work and feel and look and, um, uh, yeah, everything, gosh, everything was so new and all that. In technology these days, you know, you're right, uh, I don't really get the same feelings as much. <coughs> Technology really starts at the low level, the level of atoms. And sometimes I'll read about a new nanotechnology product or material that has some promise and say, whoa, if that works out, the sort of products that we're going to have may not show up for a decade or more. But, boy, it's going to you know, change life as we know it. And it's almost the same as the way they talk about genomics possibilities. So I, those sort of things excite me, but I don't have enough time to actually get my hands on it. You know, an inventor wants to have an idea... Go into the lab, hook it up, build it right away, test it out, and come back a week later and see that it works or something. Or is that idea good or is it bad? That's how an inventor has to be, right away on their own, doing all the different tasks, the multidisciplinary tasks involved: the design, the software, the hardware, this and that. And I don't have time to do that these days for various reasons. So I think that's part of why I'm not... Um, as excited about certain aspects of technology now, or seeing this is so new, whoever thought of this happening.
4: Great right, things. You still seem very excited and passionate about
2: it. <laughs> well, there's a lot of great products here. huh? I'm a gadget guy, so huh, there's more gadgets than we ever had before.
1: <laughs> All right, Steve, why don't we move on to the next? Yeah, and I, th- I think our ex- one of our experts is in San Diego, isn't he? Uh, yes, I am. So it's your turn.
3: Okay. Uh, I have one question. Uh, about six weeks ago, David Brin wrote an
1: article for Salon titled, Why Johnny Can't Code. And he writes, the simple programming language, Basic, used to be on every computer a child touched. But today, there's no easy way for kids to get hooked on programming.
0: <coughs> um,
1: I know personally that I learned how to program uh, in Basic on a personal computer. And I was wondering if do you think that uh, removing Basic or programming languages from modern computers is going to have an adverse effect in the future on computer programming
0: and
2: electrical engineering. Yes, I I do. I think that very often, exactly what you're saying. (coughs) That young kids have an easy-to-deal with language where they can sit down and write, even on their own, the programs that we see on computers to this day are so far beyond them with the, the sort of programming systems that they're written with. It's, it's something that, you know, an expert can do, but not the beginner. And yet, there have been languages where the beginners could do it. We had one at Apple called HyperCard. It had the visual graphics, menus, everything on your computer, and you could program it in a simple English-like language. Um, very often I like to sit down with just AppleScript. All these um, simple languages you can sit down with an idea and test them out right away. Basic was that way, Fortran even. Um, Yeah, it is a shame that we don't even... uh, Computer science, like computer programming, really hasn't gotten into our schools in a very major way when you consider that the computer is the most important academic um, instrument of our lives, and it's been here here for so long. At first, there was a move towards, oh, wow, maybe computers should be part of our curriculum. But what are schools ever going to give up? They're not going to give up the same number of hours of history, mathematics, English that they have now. So they're not going to modify. I, mean, I think we'd be the good. We'd be better off not to teach history. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, you know, people say we learn from our mistakes. We learn from our mistakes and uh, don't repeat them. But actually, we just glorify war, and every generation wants their own.
4: <laughs> remember, this is a history class.
2: <laughs> and remember, it's I
1: joke. <laughs> uh, appreciate. UW, is there other expert up there? Got any questions? Yeah i got a question, so when, what you, you, building, when you were building the uh, the Macintosh, who were you building it for? Was it for like home users, businesses, small business, big business, Like, who, was the, who were the users to,
3: who were designing that, the Macintosh for?
2: The Macintosh was designed for all of the above. It was designed to be a system that a, a raw beginner could use, but the most expert person could use. It was designed to be a system with bitmap graphics with High quality characters on the screen. Eventually, laser writers were in the plan to have, you know, you could print documents that looked like they came off of high quality typewriters. These are things that business, so I'd say probably the central thinking was for small business. Um, Initially, we marketed the Macintosh (coughs) to some Ivy League colleges and similar ones, largely out east, under the guise that. People don't want to know what's in a computer anymore. They don't want to know what processor it is, what speed it runs. All they want is a nice machine that does their, their report for school and takes away the technology. And I think that largely came from Steve Jobs. He was never really an engineer or a programmer, and I think he always wanted computers to apply to the people that weren't. Uh,
1: so open it up to students at UW.
3: Anybody else?
1: I have a question, at uh, Microsoft.
4: Yeah. Um, I'm interested in this this shift. I mean, you didn't really expect it, but eventually, business users were something like 90% of your market, right? When VisiCalc hit it big, and at the same time, when we got into the 80s, you know, the PC sort of by 83 was starting to overtake the Apple II in, in business. What, what happened there? Was it IBM's brand power? Was it they had a better microprocessor? Was it a mistake with the
2: Apple III? From the day IBM uh, PC was introduced, they were really, <coughs> um, I think, exceeding us in business. And the reason is IBM sold a lot of mainframes into companies, into the enterprise, and there were buyers that could just X off anything as being from IBM. It was pre approved. So when the, so to order PCs, they had an easy ordering system, and they didn't really have that for um, Apple II's. So the IBM PC um, was was just was very popular in business. By the time the Macintosh came out, a program 123 came out <coughs> on the on the PC, and it did the, the the database, it did the graphics, it did the word processing, and combined them together. All right, was it the spreadsheet, whatever it was, the business people had a tool that we didn't have the equivalent of on our computer and they all flew to it and it was a good reason to say, you know, you always become a little bit of a bigot. Whatever computer you have, whatever software you have that you use, everyone should use the same one as you. You want other people to be like yourself. So all these business people had one, two, three and they couldn't give it up and they started saying, well, the Macintosh is a toy because it has pictures on the screen. It's a toy. And really, it was just as powerful a processor inside. Um, so it was a false image. But boy, they got that image across for quite a few years. It was a long recovery for the Macintosh to come out of that. But like the theory is, there are people that, to this day, think that a Macintosh, because it has graphics, couldn't do the hard, big, serious jobs, even though every PC now is a Macintosh. Do you
4: think, you think the three, if it looked a little different, could have held off the PC longer? Or was IBM in business, and that was the way it was going to be?
2: We marketed the Apple III as the business machine against IBM, Yeah, but um, with the IBM, they were talked by Bill Gates into being open in the sense that the hardware would be open, so lots of other people could build accessories and software and, and work with their machine, and that was what made the Apple II so successful, and it's very true, although I don't think that DOS was open to where other people had access to it, but Bill Gates talked IBM into making the hardware open. That meant that Sanyo and Sony and all these companies had PCs, and they all ran the same system. It looked like a larger world. When you walk into a store and look at the music devices today, you see thousands of products for for iPods and only a few products for any other music machine. You feel a lot more comfortable going where the mass of support is. Fair enough. So
4: did you ever consider... Allowing Apple II
2: clones, did it ever pass anyone's mind? Um, The idea of Apple II clones never once, I don't think, came up that I ever heard. Um, It did come up in later times regarding Macintosh, I believe. I don't think Apple II, although every executive at Apple, myself being excluded, I um, felt that cloning was a mistake, and I think it was based on one of the popular business books of the day, and the author had come and spoken at Apple that um, this cloning was just a way to licensing licensing our software of the Macintosh was just a way to reap very few of the rewards of it and that really by being a hardware company you know puts us higher up on the fortune 500 list and all that stuff Interesting. Because even if the profits are the same for the Macintosh operating system as the Macintosh operating system plus the hardware when you build all the hardware and you buy all the parts and build the factories you're selling it for a higher price and you look and you're not judged by profits on the Fortune 500, but by revenues.
0: Uh,
1: fine. Uh, student, students in Berkeley, we have to... have another quick question
0: lesson, from Microsoft. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Okay, go on. Sir. So, uh, Steve, I'm wondering, uh, I've been reading your book, and uh, at one point you mentioned uh, that building the Apple II before the Apple I was a real possibility. Um, I'm wondering, I guess, what lessons... Uh, you learned from building the Apple I that were applicable to Apple II, and were they valuable enough to really make it worthwhile?
2: Oh boy, what lessons. Um, The Apple I, you have to remember, wasn't really designed as a computer from the ground up. And the Apple II was. It was a far superior machine. When we came out with the Apple II, we did offer some PC boards alone, not fully built computers, just like we had with the Apple I, for a very low cost, like $600. And we also offered incredible trade back for anybody who had an Apple I. <coughs> we'd buy it back for something like half of what you bought it for. Um, we really uh, didn't sell very many Apple Ones. We built 200, maybe we sold 150 of them, so it was such a small number, I just wouldn't compare it that way. Um, the Apple I was a needed step to sell when we did. The Apple II wasn't really sold till a year later, although it was ready to be shown, and it was completed when we started selling Apple 1s. It still um, wasn't finished, ready to deliver with the right chip, the right chips for the, the memory that I described, the 2K-byte ROMs. Um, there, were a lot, there was a lot of finishing stuff. Plus, we needed money to even start the Apple II. We'd sell 1,000 right away. We needed the money to build them.
0: So, so how important to uh, Apple II's uh, success was the timing of its release? I mean, it sounds like... Uh, that was pretty uh, I mean it was pretty critical that you get it out when you did, right?
2: The Apple II? Right. Um, no, no. it turns out that um, there was one show in San Francisco that was a very good show to introduce it at. We got our plastic cases about two days before that show. Put them together. Oh my gosh, we got them working. Um, <coughs> we had a lot of fun at the show. I did. A, I think, I don't know if in the book it discusses, I did a a fake brochure that I passed out thousands of copies for a phony product. The other yeah. people at Apple didn't even know I did it. <laughs> and I had a joke program on the computer would ask you your name and then tailor all the jokes to your ethnic. This is <laughs> quick,
1: quick question. Uh, just wondering why you left Apple, if you don't mind sharing it with us.
2: Why I left Apple um, <coughs> after a plane crash Because Apple was now to a point that I had done those critical starting projects and been the critical engineer for quite a while and been so successful at all of them. And now we had dozens of engineers and the projects were going on a different way. Apple's financial success didn't depend on me as much. And I really did want to get back to the year of college. I forgot to mention in my speech that when I left after my third year at Berkeley, I went to work because I wanted to earn the money for my fourth year of college. It's just that that fourth year, that year of working stretched out to 10 years. So I, I really did want to go back to college and uh, put on music shows. And I went right back to Apple. Then I left again because I wanted to start another small company. I like small groups of people just coming up with a new idea. It was a universal remote control. That was about 85, 86. I left, and I, I haven't been back formally since, but I'm loyal to the company.
3: Awesome. Thanks. Question from San Diego. Please. Uh, I have a question. Uh, you talked about uh, proposing your uh, design of Apple to HP and they refusing the design. What do you think would have happened if they would uh, go ahead with the implementation of Apple? Do you think that the large companies have uh, ability and uh, adapti- adaptability to adjust to market really quickly because most of the things in Apple were designed like a the floppy drive was done in two weeks, and a lot of little cool ideas was designed by a small group of engineers. And later, you went on to do the universal remote control, which was also done in a small group of engineers. So, your general view is that that most innovative projects comes from a small group of people, or do large companies actually are able to innovate?
2: Yeah, I believe that the world would have been hurt quite a bit if Hewlett-Packard had gone with my designs, decided to build it. They would not have been able to build. <coughs> the fanciful, imaginative product that would really stimulate people to own their own computer. Um, as a matter of fact, it's in my book that after the Apple I and then we have the Apple II coming along, I showed it to engineers at Hewlett Packard. One, one after another, they would say, That's the best product I've ever seen in my life. You know, and I still feel that way about it. But Hewlett Packard by then had its own project going. Right there on my floor of my building, they had a project with a microprocessor and a bunch of people working on dynamic memory, which I had used, and a little tiny video screen, and I had just done video for full color and graphics and everything, and a a keyboard and a tape drive, a more professional tape drive, and it ran the language basic. They had five people writing the BASIC, And I went to the manager of that project, and I said, Hey, calculators isn't my life. Computers is what I want to do, I'll do anything on this project, I don't have to, you know, just because I've done it all, I didn't have to run the project, I said, I'll do anything, just a printer interface, any lowly job, I want to work with computers, and they turned me down. And their product was unimaginative and never did anything. I mean, it got marketed, but um, never sold. So, Waz, this is Ed, it seems to me in addition to the
3: imagination component, there's a cost component, that is, HP had some notion of the, uh, Sort of mill spec nature of the stuff they shipped. I remember the early terminals they had back in the early 1980s. These enormous bulletproof things that cost many thousands of dollars. And so presumably they couldn't, on top of everything else, they never could have produced something that would have reached the home market at that period of time, right?
2: No, totally wrong. We built calculators right here in my division.
3: Well, totally different form factor though, right? No? Um, what, what caused them to build? You know those?
2: what? Maybe it takes a little bit of imagination to put a plastic case on a computer and Steve Jobs had it and Hewlett-Packard didn't. I don't know. Yeah. okay. But I think they would have taken my design and put out a product that really didn't um, <coughs> wasn't the right product for people. Yeah.
1: Okay, let's have some questions in Berkeley.
3: Please. <laughs> uh, uh, you are still a lover of technical gadgets. I'm curious. What's your favorite uh, technical gadget
2: in the year 2006? <laughs> it, it's so difficult. the year 2006, technical gadgets. So many of the mobile internet devices, and I haven't gone that way yet. So many of the, um, good lord, the television, you know, I mean, TiVo's came out in 2000, but um, uh, we got the sling boxes that'll broadcast it to you wherever you are. So many of those gadgets stimulate me, but, you know, I like to s- click on the ones that. Um, get a real impact on people. I like to have the, the unique things that people want to come up and see and I'd say my watch. is the best gadget of my life. It's built with parts that don't, aren't made anymore. Vacuum tubes called Nixie tubes. And when I turn my wrist, it shows the hours and the minutes. And uh, that's just such a simple use, but nobody would ever thought of it. Wish I'd done it myself. Um, I do love the Segway as a two-wheeled self-balancing with gyroscopes device. I get a lot of use out of that. I don't know what a, what the gadget. I've got so many gadgets, you know, from <laughs> the, the, the portable satellite radios. The navigation portable navigation units um, are just so incredible. Almost every device you buy nowadays can do the same things. They can all play music, and they can all show photos, and they can all <laughs> do navigation, and <clears throat> one after another.
4: Question from Yuda, please. So, 80s and uh, late 80s and early 90s, when you know you were out of Apple, and uh, so was Jobs. Under Scully, it said that the company had become too marketing oriented and, and then Jobs came back and the rest is history. Uh, did you ever think of coming back?
2: Well actually, um, yes, but first of all, there was this, there's been this thing played up in some media that, um, my, that John Scully, as a CEO of Apple, had come from Pepsi and he knew how to market. He knew how to market soft drinks. John Scully paid so much attention to the important engineers in our company, like Bill Atkinson, and gave them so much leeway in deciding how products would be marketed and included with the computer, and really respected them a lot. And Steve Jobs is really incredible at marketing, you know, getting the attention of the needs of the customers and and uh, and even being able to introduce products, speak about them the right way, um, you know, and. and I think Steve's also a very good businessman in the sense of not overbuilding, of basically you know managing inventory and making sure we, you know, have the right numbers on things. He's really down to earth. So I, I, it's hard to portray both those things. Yes, I would love to go back to Apple, but it's, I don't think it's going to happen. Um, I don't have real um, current. Um, current inclinations i mean i can look at products and visualize where they might go what's right what's wrong but i don't have experience designing them lately so probably not and besides i've got my own company going right now i always do i got something going on it's going to get real heavy in february we just acquired a chip maker in southern california it's all exciting question from san diego um back in the
3: in the 70s the computers were these very uh, expensive and huge machines uh, too complex for a man to 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 use and uh one, one you alone were able to to design one and and uh, make it easy for for people to to use it how would you compare it to today's uh technology i mean what would be the equivalent if if you had been born like 20 years ago What would you be building right now in your dorm?
2: I can't tell you, probably a robot that could make a cup of coffee, but I don't think that's ever going to (laughs) happen. I like to talk, that's one of my big examples nowadays, because, well, I could go into your house and make a cup of coffee, yeah, Yeah. and you could come into mine and make a cup of coffee, probably. Yeah, a good chance, (laughs) but I don't think a robot could. But uh, no, I I think that the parts for robotics. Um, I think I'm waiting for a robot kit to come out to be the Apple II of robot kits someday for you know youngsters that like to hook things together and connect them and make devices that actually do useful things. I think we need a lot more in the way of intelligence software though.
1: Question for San Diego: uh, What do you think of the direction that Apple is heading in now? Like it doesn't seem like they would include schematics with iPod iPhone today.
2: Apple's always been in a pretty good position of being one of the largest computer companies in the world, despite being a very closed system, just on their own. It's very difficult to go back, um, you know, should we have licensed the Macintosh software? Would we maybe have the market share of you know, 50% of the world or more? And there's no one way to get an answer. You shouldn't really go back and say, yes, what we did was right, or yes, what we did was wrong. Now we have the iPods and the computers. It's the first time we've really had two major product lines and it's like diversifying your portfolio the company's a lot more stable as one product line does better the other might be doing worse but it's a it's a lot more stable for the company we're based on two products now not just one when we all we had was a computer as the fortunes of that computer and the way it was treated in the press and competitive products came out and other factors our stock would just fly up two to one in a few months or drop drop in half you know, in, in a few months, and it's kind of painful because large things like big companies aren't supposed to move really drastically. It's supposed to move very slowly over time, but it was very tough for us only having one product. I mean, I don't I don't know what more you're asking. If you're asking something else, uh,
0: actually, my my question was about uh, like back
1: in the '70s, Apple would include. Uh, like the, the designs with or the
0: schematics with uh, like in the manuals that he said today now it's more marketed towards uh, like you know uh, more home users
1: that sort of thing where like, like they're, they're no longer trying to educate
0: the, the user on how it actually works want to be
2: yeah, I actually wish that um, every product I bought, I wish there was a little schematic showing even just what the chips, even though the design is really in the middle of a chip and you can't see that, what chips were used and how they were hooked together with wires. Oh, I would find that very interesting, fascinating. Yeah, that you, you can't find that in products much anymore.
1: Here in Berkeley, no, go ahead. Yes. Okay. Um, Speak up. better related to the educating the um, user on how the technology works. Um, how do you
3: feel about the $100 or one laptop per child initiative and how the, the potential um, social and cultural impacts of
2: that project? Yeah, it's very difficult to see how the one laptop per child for $100 and some <coughs> a child in a very remote area that maybe doesn't even have electricity, how they're going to get much benefit from what a computer does. And I talked to somebody who was closer to the team doing it who said, well, and I think maybe they changed their mind somewhere along the line, but said, it's really not to get computers there. It's to give them the motivation to build the infrastructure, the electricity and the internet, and uh, give them a reason for it. And uh, that's a noble purpose.
3: Question from you, Deb? Go ahead, uh, so, uh, so actually as far as clones,
1: uh, when I was growing up in Soviet Union in 1987, my first computer was an Apple clone,
3: uh, manufactured by, uh, some Soviet company. <laughs> <And> <laughs> the question that I have was, is that one thing about Apple II is that it was, from what I can tell, that was compatible almost, I think, to Apple I programs. Uh, all the way until like 93rd or whatever it was finished. But on the other hand, Macintosh and different actually different versions of Macintosh do not have the backwards compatibility for software, like sort of OS X, for example, is not compatible with other ones uh, directly. Uh, do you think that was a important uh, feature of Apple II?
2: Well, well, the Apple II, originally, the operating system was nothing. It was just you could direct which slot your input came from and which slot your output went to. Very simple switch and you could plug in boards that had some software that sort of worked in that scheme. But when we came out with a floppy disk, then we had an operating system that, yeah, pretty much didn't change over time. <coughs> the first programs, even on cassette tape, would still work on uh, pretty on our latest Mac and, Apple IIs we ever made. Macintoshes, yeah, it's hard to say if you can take early programs, but um, computers have changed so much over the lifetime of the Macintosh that it's hard to expect those early programs to have any <coughs> chance of running again. Um, Steve Jobs likes to always look into the future, both with peripherals that are coming, chips that are coming, ways of software, new programs, and uh, looking into the future and being stepping that way. We just changed our PCMCIA cia slot last year to a new uh, PC Express slot. God, you couldn't buy any cards for it. And people who are like myself were out of luck for a while, but... Um, that's, that's Apple's way of bit to not have so much backwards compatibility, and we're sometimes you know accused of it as being wrong, but uh, um, those of us p- pretty much in the Macintosh crowd accept it and um, don't really complain that loudly.
1: Time for a couple more Questions for
3: you, Doug. Go ahead. Uh, we had a nice presentation by Gordon Bell here several weeks ago, who, as I'm sure you know, is the architect of the PDP line
2: at Digital, and his observation, uh, along with some others, is that we're moving away from personal computers, more towards specialty devices to provide access, like PDAs and cell phones and so on, and the applications will be posted somewhere much
1: like the Google model. Um, what do you think this portends for companies like Apple, that are in the classical computing space?
2: Um, The thing is, we've made storage so inexpensive. You don't really want to distribute your... um, You you know, I think people could come to where they will distribute their music and photographs out on the web, but only if they can keep a copy locally. There's some things that are just too critically personal. You want it yourself if if you can store it all on a $100 disk. So it's hard to say the personal computer goes away. Look at the iPod. Before the iPod, there were a lot of music devices. The iPod was the first one that wasn't a music device. It was a satellite to your personal computer. People have kind of come to accept the personal computer as their main center. It's the it's the device that you're going to synchronize your um you know your <coughs> your trios with and and um you know your media devices that are out there. Everyone is playing with the uh, the mobile internet devices and um I don't know. I see a lot of people, a lot of things being lost with that too. I still think the computer is the center, and I see it in the future going to be the center of your life and distribution of your um, your media, your email, your movies, your pictures, and your music.
1: Last question, but you're going to have to top that. I see one here in Berkeley. Yeah, you mentioned uh, the iPod and Slingbox
2: and, and TiVo and some electronics. That you, like. um, you heard of the upcoming iTV, and do you think Apple? Um, describe the ITV. A uh, box that works off iTunes connects to your TV? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I believe in that very much. Um, I think it was a little bit under-designed because it only had um, <coughs> the HDMI and the um, component video out. And those are both in use if you have, on a lot of the, the modern HDTVs already, if you have a cable box and a DVD player, So I think an analog output would have been nice to have on it. But oh, yeah, yeah, everything until you get rid of a wire and it becomes remote. From your computer, you can now play your videos to your television set. Just like right now, I plug in my um, Apple Airport Express by the Hi-Fi, and I can just in iTunes select where my music's going. Is it going to my computer? Is it going to the living room speakers? Is it going to the bedroom speakers? Well, now I'll be able to send my video wherever I want. I even see on the Sunday, your cell phone might carry all of your television and your accounts and you'll just pick on it w- when you're in a house where, where it's going to go to. This TV set. You might have to put it in a charger for the battery to last. <laughs> but, um, no, I, I just, I'm much like that. I think getting rid of a wire is freedom. And the way to get to the television set, sure, I've run, run HDMI cables to my computer. I've run uh, VDI. Uh, you, you know, I've run all these different cables to the computer. And I just do it once, and I just don't hook it up again. I just do you think the, uh, the iTunes video store is going to be as uh, successful as the music store? Is the iTunes Video Store going to be as successful as the iTunes Music Store? Um, That's hard for me to judge. In my own case, no. I subscribe to a few of them, and I don't really have the time to spend watching them on my my iPod. I'll watch them on the computer sometimes. But I'm so short of time, it's hard to say. I can listen to music when I'm short of time, because I'm doing other things and listening to music, but I can't watch the video unless I have full time for it. So it's hard to use me as the example.
1: Okay, well... uh We've worked, uh, Mr. Westniak about as hard as we can with his conscience, uh, but it's been a wonderful evening, and I'd like to thank him now and, uh, all the. Keys.